Podcast. This is Barnsley, back for the weekly talk and footy episode. Been a couple of weeks since we had the talk and footy because I was a bit sick, as I mentioned on the Supercoach one, so it's good to be back. There's been a huge amount that has happened in rugby league the last couple of weeks, so I was super keen to get on and have a chat about footy without the Supercoach in it. If you are listening for the first time, this is the rugby league episode, our talk and footy episodes, just talk footy. They don't have any Supercoach in them, but we do have the Supercoach episodes at the start of every week recorded on a Tuesday night after TLT hits and hitting on a Wednesday. But for this Talk and Footy episode, ahead of round eight kicking off, I have Marty Jones on board. Marty was on the Supercoach team preview episode for the Dragons, Mad Dragons fan. I often has some nice inside mail for me as well on the Dragons, so I thought I'd get him on board now. Marty, welcome back to the All-Stars podcast, mate. Oh, it's good to be here. Thanks for having me. Don't really have as much inside information on the Dragons at the moment because the board is being super, super quiet and there are no leaks, which is interesting. Well, that's that's the first time ever for the Dragons. <laughs> yep, that, that's exactly right. They're keeping this one super close to their chest. Uh, well, we are going to get to your Dragons, but our first thing that we have to get to is round seven and have a bit of a look at that. Now, it was a round where, look, the footy, I just got to be completely honest. I've been I've been really complimentary of the footy on these podcasts, particularly the start of the year. Like I thought the first few weeks and the first month was, was really good quality, like especially for the start of a season. I really enjoyed it. And I thought that the teams were all playing well, close competition, pretty close games. The blowout started happening a little bit, but that happens. But certainly the first few weeks, there wasn't very many at all. And I just thought it was really high quality and I really enjoyed it. I thought the refs were doing a pretty good job. Uh, the opening rounds of the season, there wasn't too much controversy. We kind of moved on from the pre-season controversy. It's always there, whether it's players going to jail, getting charged with stuff, doing something stupid or CBA agreements and player managers arguing and all the other stuff. It all happens in the pre-season, but we just sort of moved past it because the footy was so good. Got to be honest, this last round, I actually posted it in a couple of private groups and said, you know, I'm, I, I've really not enjoyed the football this round and it's really gotten to me. So I've got to be honest, I've got to say how it is. Like just overall before we actually talk about the games, Marty, so maybe it just wasn't my week, but I just I found the last couple of weeks I'm just not enjoying it and it just really hit ahead on the weekend because there was a few games where it was super stop-start from a lot of penalties. There was people laying down all the time to try and get them. There were sin bins galore everywhere, which we're going to talk about later. And it was just terrible decisions as well. And I just I wasn't enjoying the footy, and it really made me angry. So can you cheer me up, or are you angry about it too? Um, no, every year for the last five years, it seems like when I look at the players, profiles and the teams, I kind of think to myself, this is going to be the year when it becomes tight. And it seems like every year for the last sort of five to six years, I've been disappointed and the football has not really improved in my mind. Um, This year is actually the opposite. This year, there were so many changes of player personnel and having a new club came in really kind of spread the market out a lot. And there are a lot of key positional changes, particularly at hooker. And so this year, I sort of thought uh, the better teams have been depowered a bit The weaker teams definitely look like they've improved a bit, but it's probably going to take a while for this all to gel. 
Um, so I sort of didn't really have particularly high hopes for the first few rounds, but then it started and it was just amazing. I think this has been the best start to a competition I've seen in at least 10 years. Um, and some of the teams that you kind of looked at and thought, well, it's probably unlikely to continue. So teams like the Dolphins and the Warriors, for example, I mean, you're seeing really solid teams, even Newcastle with the injury toll that they've had for them to be playing with the spirit that they've had is just amazing. And then, as you said, last week, it just came along and absolutely stank. There were a couple of good games. There are a lot of tight games. There are a lot of games where the team leading at halftime ended up losing. Um, but if you actually look at the footy and go, well, yeah, but what about the huge missed tackles, the massive number of mistakes, the errors left, right and centre? That was definitely the weakest round of football I've seen this year. But I don't think that's going to continue. Um, there's a lot of sort of sketchy weather around Sydney at the moment, so I'm, I'm not sure how this round will go. Um, but I'm pretty confident we are seeing the thing we've wanted to see for a long time, which is a red-hot competition. Yeah, well, the other part of that is the officials and how it's being refereed at the moment, but we'll talk about that yeah. in our uh, later segment where we are definitely going to hit on it. But as far as the games go, <laughs> we, uh, we kicked off with the Dolphins and South Sydney Rabbitohs, and this was really interesting because the first half, like I went into this and actually said, you know, look, having a punt this weekend, I'm going 13 plus on the Rabbits and, you know, I can't believe that the, the value that's there and stuff, I think that they're going to blow them off the park. And the first half, it was pretty scary because the Dolphins were leading at halftime. Uh, they'd scored two tries to one. They hit a penalty goal as well. And the Rabbits could only put six points on the board in the first half. And it was like, wow, I did not expect this at all. And I sort of thought maybe Souths can come home and I thought they could, they can win this, but I didn't think they were going to win it in a canter. So I was pretty worried about my bets. I was pretty, I would have been worried about my super coach team if I had any South Sydney players, but it was um, pretty impressive from the Dolphins and they did it in the way that they've been winning or competing in all their games. They were kind of just grinding it out and just not giving South Sydney much. But also to South Sydney, they just weren't doing enough either. Like you just sort of, it's just seemed like the same old story where you see Souths go on a bit of a run and then they'd hit a week where they just wouldn't perform as well as what they should in a game that they really should perform in. And Latrell was quiet in the first half again. Uh, but then, you know, fast forward to the second half and <laughs> instead of, you know, the six-point half that they had in the first half, the Rabbits put on 30 unanswered points and won the second half 30-0. And they did it with five tries. Latrell Mitchell starred in the second half as well. Um, he actually played really well. I thought he was exceptional again. Uh, and I thought that Walker was exceptional again, which is surprising because I thought that Cody was going to be on the downturn this year, but he's put together a couple of good weeks. Cody himself, uh, I think all of this came in the second half with his try, three try assists and three line break assists. So a bit of a tale of two halves, really. And that's a bit of a rugby league cliche, Marty. But the first half, it was all Dolphins. And it was, you know, how much does South Sydney suck this week? What are they doing? They should be better. And the second half, it was like, this is the South Sydney side that could win the Premiership. Yeah, well, you're seeing that a lot at the moment, though. Um, if you look at the sort of the Dragons, when they capitulated to the Broncos, for example, and same with the Sharks, you're finding that the teams which maybe aren't quite up there, they are often competing really well for the first half. Um, but as time goes on, unless they're able to get a lead of sort of 10 to 12 points, which means I need to execute well and, and take advantage of that possession, they get in trouble. So watching that game, um, when it was 14-6 at half time, 
I mean, the, the good news is the Dolphins go into the sheds, they're eight points up, they'll be stoked, right? But looking at it, um, sitting on the couch, I was sort of thinking, you guys haven't actually done enough to win this game. Um, possession's going to turn around. Uh, to me, the sort of turning point in the game was um, Bromwich getting sin-binned. Um, from the moment that happened, they started absolutely punching that side. Um, if you look at the Dolphins' stats, for example, they only had two forwards that ran over 120 metres. All of their work was being done by their um, by their outside backs. Um, whereas if you look at the Rabbits, um, they had six forwards that ran over 120 metres. Um, so it was a tale of two halves. It was a tale of two different styles. Um, and unfortunately, the better team uh, won. And you, you're starting to see that. And I think that will continue this year. It, it's it's all well and good to sit there and compete hard and to fight hard. And I've got massive respect for the Dolphins that achieved this year. But if you can't actually take advantage of it and when you get the ball, if you can't get over the line enough, then in the long run, these these better teams probably are going to catch up to you. Uh, and that's what happened in that game. But, I mean, I, I thought it was a good game for sort of 65 minutes. Then after that, it was just, you know, the Cody... AJ Mitchell kind of show, and I mean, I had a I had a big multi in that one as well that got up. But I've got to be honest with you, sixty five minutes into the game, I thought I'd done my money on that one. Yeah, hundred um, percent. So I, I mean, I think that the the lack of class is going to come through for the Dolphins, and it's something that Wayne Bennett in the preseason and even in prior rounds was turning his nose up at when reporters and things would suggest it. But you can see it. Like they had Nick Arima who. In the halves, I thought he looked outstanding for the first 10 minutes. He set up a try and everything, and then he just disappeared. Yeah, yeah, it was good. And young Katoa is obviously too young, and they just don't have the class. So, like you said, 14-6 at the half, they should have been up more. And when you look at the statistics, uh, the Dolphins actually completed 86% to the Rabbits, 83 Possession was almost split evenly. Mm. And, you know, they, they had a lot of the rub of all the stats when you have a look at it. So to lose 36-14... to 14, you can, you can really see that they just didn't have the class to, like you said, take advantage of it. The The following game was the Sharks and the Roosters. Um, pretty hard to talk about this one for me, but I will. <laughs> um, yeah. uh, I just, uh, I thought at the halftime mark, I did think that the Roosters would go on with it. And I, I thought it would be a good game. Like I, I respect the Sharks a lot. At Points Bet Stadium last year, they were a powerhouse. I hardly lost any games there. So I always knew it was going to be a bit of a tough Road trip for the Roosters, but I did think they'd come away and win. And I, I did think at the halftime, Mark, that they'd come out of the gates in the second half and be able to get, you know, a, a solid win out of it. And beating the Sharks there would have been good. But the Sharks just, it was all them in the second half. The Roosters didn't put on any points in the second half for the second week in a row. And it just was the Nico Hines show again. And I expected Nico Hines to have a really good game, but... I didn't expect him to be able to just consistently have the type of impact that he has. He had two line breaks uh, with a try assist, but um, pretty much was involved in every try that they had as well. And just he just seems to be able to adjust his game to be efficient and effective in winning that Sharks team football matches every single week. It doesn't matter what the opposition is, especially at points bet stadium. So I was really impressed with him. Um, but for my Roosters side, uh, there was obviously a large number of issues for them. Not being able to score points in the second half is a big deal. Uh, I did think that we are going to talk about Sam Walker's dropping later, so I don't want to get into it now. Uh, I did think that he was very quiet. I thought that he actually started the season pretty well, but the last couple of weeks he's been off the ball. He missed eight tackles, uh, had three penalties, conceded an error. It was just an unhappy night for him. Tedesco made his return from being off a week. I expected a lot from Teddy, and he just didn't seem to get the opportunity. And I did think that the Roosters' forwards were quite good. 
obviously we've got the sin bins in this one as well, but the reality is that there was that point in the second half, Marty, which I think was the turning point, which the sin bins are a turning point. There's no getting around that. But there's also a point where the Roosters just got starved of possession, and that's where Hines really shined. For the game, it was 54% possession for the Sharks. And in the second half, there was a period there where it just went all all Cronulla. And I actually said to a friend of mine, who's a big Roosters fan, during the game, I don't know if we're going to have the energy in this last 20 because we've just got it taken out of us. You know, between the sin bins and the, the starving of possession, which is credit to the Sharks, the Roosters just had to do so much defence, which was admirable. But in the end, I just thought that was going to get them, and it certainly did. Yeah, I think the um, the Roosters ran out of puff. The interesting thing, there's a couple of interesting things that came out of that game for me when I looked at the stats after it because, to me, it was a pretty scrappy game, you know. I thought the Sharks were a little bit more creative, but I think the Roosters did brilliantly. And the thing you've got to bear in mind, I mean, for the last two seasons, the Roosters have just been destroyed through injuries. You know, I, I remember a game last year looking at the back line and they, the only two players in the whole back line that you would normally expect to be there was um, was Walker and and um, Manu. And then partway through the game, Manu got injured and and went off. And you looked at the whole team and went, holy shit, how can this happen to one club? And, and, and so the start of this season, I thought, well, the, the Roosters don't have the depth that they've had in previous seasons, but they just can't have as bad a run with injuries as they've had in the last two years. And maximum respect to the Roosters, they've actually been competitive in both seasons despite this injury toll. Um, then 2023 comes along and they're losing some of their best players before the ball's even been kicked off, you know. So I think with with the Roosters, they have been doing it pretty tough and I think this game really took it out of them. Um, a couple of things that stood out to me, the Roosters conceded 14 penalties. Um, and while I think that some of that was a bit questionable, and I know we'll get to that in a future part, um, but that's a lot of penalties, you know. You can't be giving away 14 penalties against a good team. Um, the Sharks ran for 400 metres more than the Roosters in that game. And, I mean, that's a huge number of running metres to, to fall behind. Um, and if you look at the kicking game, that was interesting. Um, so Hines kicked 15 times for 551 metres. So he's got a big boot, but he finds the grass a lot. So 15 kicks for 551. Walker and Kiri combined for 22 kicks and only made 553 metres. So... Seven more kicks to make a grand increase of two metres. And I think that's something that the Roosters are struggling with at the moment. Their kicking game isn't on point. So if you've got a lot of young forwards in there because you've got injuries and you're having trouble controlling the ruck and then your kicking game isn't good, it means you have to win ugly. Um, and uh, the Roosters are very, very capable of winning ugly. Um, but this was one of those games where it just didn't kind of roll for them. Um, and like you, I think the sin bins were... A, enormously impactful on that match, you know. So uh, as a Rooster supporters, I, I wouldn't be too disappointed in that. You know, it's a strong side. You've got tons of guys coming back from injury. You can see a really great team in them. Um, but I wouldn't have dropped Sammy Walker. <laughs> we'll, we'll definitely get to that. Don't worry about that. I, I don't want to go on the sin bin too much, but there was a few in that one, and I definitely think that it... Um, it look, one of them... One of the three sin bins was at the end with a, a minute or two left, which didn't make any difference. And yeah. it was ridiculous to even bother doing it as a referee for someone holding on too long or whatever. Yeah. But the other two are um, are obviously quite impactful. 14 to 4 penalty count, like you mentioned. Uh, I think because it's the Roosters, uh, general fans will look at this game and jump on that. And, you know, it's fine. You know, it's it's a team that a lot of fans like love to hate and it, 
helps rugby league, so I'm all for it, whatever. But um, like they just love to just put the boot into the roosters, and it's like, oh, there's they're just not um, disciplined enough. There's too much ill discipline. They've got to be better. And, you know, it's really easy to do that and to jump on that narrative. But at the end of the day, like you said, I think half of them were, they were really hard done by. And you get that. Like, if you're going to play away at Points Bet Stadium, parochial Sharks crowd, it's going to be hard. But at the same time, there was just some some real bad ones where I thought that they were pretty poor calls. Uh, and the other way too, actually, I actually thought in this one, there was a couple of captain's challenges that the Roosters won that I thought probably were very 50-50. Mm, yeah. So overall, I, I thought it was officiated pretty badly. But this next one, when we're talking about absolute <laughs> bludgers, merely 18, Melbourne Ugh. Storm 8. I have not enjoyed a game this yeah. little <laughs> since I had a memory of maybe when yeah. I was three years old. It was, it was pretty bad. And it kind of like, it's a good win for Manly. I mean, that's probably something that needs to be said. Daly Cherry Evans has been in really good early season form and not a lot of people have sort of given him the limelight this season, but he deserves it. He's actually been really good. And I thought the second half of last season, he was absolutely atrocious and not enough people were talking about how bad Daly Cherry yeah. Evans was. He he was really good again in this match. And he's also led them the last few weeks, really. He ended up with a line break in this one, as well as... Uh, a try assist in a game that didn't have many points and didn't have much happening, didn't have any errors or penalties and didn't miss a tackle. He has been really brilliant for Manly uh, and always gets overshadowed by Trevojevic, but he well and truly outplayed Turbo in this one. And I just thought he he, he led the way and got them the win. Melbourne, um, it was a dirty, gritty, ugly game. And Melbourne are normally really good at winning those. It just so happened that they came up against a side that also likes to play like that against the Storm historically, and it was at Four Pines as well, so Manly had the home game advantage. You kind of got the feeling, Marty, that if this was at Amy Park, it would have been the same game, but the scoreline would have been reversed. I, I really think that the being at Four Pines really helped out Manly, but the, there's no getting around it. I've already said it. It was a bludger of a game. You had the Storm complete at 71%. Manly were good at 84% and had 54% possession, but it, you can't even see it in the stats. Like, if you're having a look at the missed tackles, the Storm is 33, which isn't particularly acceptable, and Bellamy was really unhappy about it. Manly only missed 14, which was good. 22 errors between them. There was 15 penalties between them, which is high. But the fact that they were stop-starting all the time, the, the refs were pulling up play, the players was lying down for injuries, which was occasionally being rewarded, and it seemed to constantly happen. You had all these slow play the balls. It was just bad football. And, 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 you know, back in the day, maybe teams, maybe some fans like to see a grind out. And I did see some fans like the game a little bit and call it out as like this great battle between Manly and Storm. Oh, I just didn't really feel that way about it. No, I mean, look, again, like some of the other games in that weekend, um, for the purists, it, it wasn't a great game. Um, I was watching it and the bits that I liked in the game, I really enjoyed. You know, it was a super, super physical game and it was spiteful. You know, these are two teams that really dislike each other. And they're that two hit teams. was massive too, like to give credit to jump in. that You're talking about a great, that, how good was that hit on Olam? That was fantastic. Yeah, um, yeah. <laughs> I think he's suspended for it now or maybe it was the next one, but yeah. Um, and also that was played in front of a rabid crowd, you know. I mean, that was a very, very loud and noisy crowd and so was the Sharks crowd, actually. That was one thing I noticed across the weekend. That even though the games weren't necessarily great, the crowds were great, the numbers were good, but they were loud. They were right into it. And, I mean, I just thought the Eagles ran harder 
um, than the Storm. I think the Storm lost the ruck. I couldn't believe how bad the halves were in the Storm. And I think, and I'm not one to criticise Bellamy because, A, I'm not a coach, and, B, I'm not a brilliant coach. But given how wet it was, why would you move Munster, the world's best 5'8", where he can control the game, why would you move him into fullback? And so while I realise Munster has an amazing game at fullback and while I realise that there's a couple of injuries there which probably make it a little bit difficult to cover Meany, um, but when I saw that team sheet, my first thought was, has Bellamy actually looked at the weather? Because you want a bloke with Munster's footwork and organisational skills and short kicking game. You want him to get the ball in his hands as much as he can and you want him to get that ball in his hand close to the ruck. Um, so I think in many ways Storm made a tactical decision there which was the wrong decision in the dry weather game. 100% you go that way, but in a wet weather game, playing a team like the Eagles, they're going to try to drag you into this epic arm wrestle. Um, I actually think that was the biggest mistake that was made. So um, it was a game, wasn't a great game uh, to watch, but I mean, it was 12 eight with seven minutes left on the clock. So, I mean, while it was kind of frustrating and lots of errors and stuff like that, I mean, it was like a lot of the games on the weekend. I, I enjoyed it, just sort of only half of my brain enjoyed it. The other half of my brain thought this is rubbish. <laughs> That's probably a pretty fair call. And it's interesting the point that you make on Munster because I actually, it's one of those things where because he's such a star player and he's such a good player, some guys are sort of Teflon. They don't really get much criticism that sticks to them. And last mm. year when Munster was moving moving to fullback at times, I actually thought he was pretty bad, especially defensively and also positionally. And even yeah. even in that game on the weekend, there was a point where it was like, well, where's Munster? Like, yeah, he made mistakes. Yeah, absolutely. And it's it's weird because they don't one they don't have the the blockbuster team to be able to make up for it defensively. The last couple of years, it's been very unstorm like, especially on their outside backs and edges. Uh, they they made a lot of errors defensively. So I didn't really like putting Munster there, but I guess Young Peasant has shown that he he probably is good enough to be in the side. So maybe they needed to fit him in, and that was the only way that they can really do that. So yeah, but yeah. That's exactly right, yeah. Moving along, aside from this game being an absolute bludger, there was actually some <laughs> uh, decent contests. The Warriors and the Cowboys, uh, this was a nice arm wrestle. I actually thought that the Cowboys were pretty good value to win this. Uh, Betty Markets had Cowboys as the outsiders. They came right in and ended up being favourites, you know, sort of the day of the game. But in the end, uh, the Warriors win by eight points, all locked up in the 58th minute, and then Dylan Walker comes through, makes you 5-8, scores a try, Sean Johnson slots the goal and then hits a penalty goal to seal it with an eight-point win with three minutes to go. Uh, It was certainly unexpected for me that the Cowboys continued to slide in this manner. I did think that they were in for a poorer season, much less than what they achieved last year. And the Warriors opposite for me, you know, I'm expecting the Warriors to sort of drop off. And they kind of had, like, the two weeks before this, the Warriors actually gave up 30-plus points to the Knights and the Sharks two weeks in a row. And so I thought this game, even though it was at Mount Smart, um, this Cowboys side has got to eventually fire. They've only just gotten back Nanai into the side, who's a noted try scorer for them. Uh, Drinkwater came back a couple of weeks ago. I thought, look, this is a week where they could actually put on some points. They struggled again, Marty. They, they could not put on the points. And it wasn't because of possession or completions. You know, they completed 86%. They had 56% possession. You can't get better than that. Like, that's 
in an ideal world, what do you ask for? 56% possession, 86% completion. Cool, give me the win. But this time around, it, they just couldn't find the tries. And it's going to be something that keeps coming up for them. It, it's if, if they don't have that sort of possession and they don't have that type of completion rate, it's going to get really ugly for them against the top teams. And at the moment, you know, the Warriors are a, sort of a, a top eight team uh, and they're playing like that sort of mid-table top eight team that could be there even at the end of the year. And the, the Warriors just wanted it more and just grabbed it out of the Cowboys who just had no attack. Yeah, so looking at the Warriors, before the season started, I, I sort of thought they'd be kind of down with the, um, you know, Dragons and Dolphins and Tigers. And then I remember the first trial they played and I could not believe how well they played. And it wasn't so much the attack because we know that they are always got a lot of flair. They were tough, they were gritty, they defended brilliantly and they were fit. And I remember the time thinking, oh, this looks like a different kind of Warriors team to me. Um, and so when the second trial came along, it was exactly the same, you know, and I just thought I didn't really know a lot about their, their coach, to be honest with you, but I did a bit of research on him and I started to sort of realise that this is the bloke they've been looking for because he's an incredibly good with man management and he's been able to change their style. Like the days the Warriors were a team that in years gone by, if there was a way to cut a corner, they would cut that corner. Um, nowadays it's just all tough stuff. Like they really are getting involved. And um, I'm and Sean Johnson, I mean, wow, who could possibly predict that after two or three years of very little, he would suddenly hit this rich vein of form? I mean, he, he's playing probably as good football now as he has at any stage in his career. You know, he's not the young, insane, sidestepping, try-scoring beast that he once was. But his ability to control the game is 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 right up there with the best in the league. So I mean, I, I'm just seeing a very very good Warriors team. Um, and as for the Cowboys, they're an interesting one. Um, their halves were absolutely woeful, right? I, I say this as an ex-rugby union five eight, and one of the most important things in the halves is you have to straighten your attack. You know, it starts with your hooker, then it goes through your lock, um, which is the reason why teams like with with, with sort of locks like Yo and Radley and Murray. It's no surprise these are the teams that are right at the top of the competition. It's because their lock straightens the attack. Um, that doesn't happen at the Cowboys. It did last year. It's not now. And then by the time it gets out to their halves, their halves are playing so laterally. They are just running those outside backs into the sideline with every single set. So when you mentioned the statistic before about possession, like for all my footballing life, possession's been pretty much the key statistic. Um, I'm looking at possession nowadays and seeing it a little bit differently. That is, there's no point having the ball if you don't know what to do with it, you know, and I find the Cowboys have fallen into that pattern. Um, they just have lost uh, structure and their halves just are nowhere near as good as they were last year. Um, and that was a team last year that, you know, when Dean Young took over as a defensive coach there, he really made an incredible defensive outfit. Um, they missed 37 tackles on the weekend and they've been missing sort of mid to high 30s and sometimes low 40s every game. So, you know, if your defence has fallen apart, your halves have lost a bit of an idea and there's no structure, then you're going to struggle to score enough points to, to win. So, I mean, that was a, a game where well done to the Warriors. I'm really pleased. Um, it's great to see them doing so well. I think we all want the Warriors to go well. Um, but the Cowboys, they have a bit of soul searching to do. They do, and it's interesting that when you have a look at it, there's only two teams that have scored less points after that round. Like That was a round where the Cowboys obviously only put 14 points on the board again against the Warriors, 
and that put them uh, third worst attacking team as far as points scored. The only teams that have scored less are the Bulldogs and the Tigers coming out of that round seven matchup. And at the same time, if you have a look at the top of the table, which is where, you know, I think that they would have been aiming to be point scoring wise, especially with their draw, you got the Brisbane Broncos on 202 points leading the way. It's it's significantly more, you know, than what the um than what the Cowboys have been able to dish up. So it's going to be really interesting because I don't think their attacks improved at all throughout the year and it hasn't really mattered who's been on the field. The other game this round that we'll touch on, and we won't go through all of them in too much detail because we can't because we don't have enough enough time on a podcast, but the Titans got done by the Broncos. I think that was all pretty expected. 43 to 26. The Broncos train roll rolls on. It wasn't it was entertaining as far as the point scoring and the Titans sort of put in in the first half with some points. The biggest thing I'll just highlight in this one, the Titans issues that they've always had are still there. You know, they can put on good points, they can compete for a while, but when it comes to winning football games, they're not there. And the one number I'll just leave it on, 40 missed tackles. That yeah. is almost 13% of their tackles were missed from the Gold Coast Titans. That's been there forever and it's still there now. Yeah, well, that's right. I mean, I, I have to say one thing I did enjoy about that game, and you tend to get this between these two teams, I really love the forward battle. You know, when you've got um, guys like Tino um, and Fafita who sort of, you know, have been playing junior football um, in that area um, or have played for the Broncos previously, when you get those guys come up against guys like Haas and Carrigan who they've played football with, they've played football against, you really do get a pretty personal battle out there. Um, and, you know, while you always knew that the Broncos were going to pick it up and run away with it in the end, like I had no doubt about the result of that match, even though Gold Coast was up at halftime. Um, what I did like was watching these Queenslanders belt the absolute tripe out of each other. Uh, it, it really reinforced <laughs> in my mind the problems New South Wales are going to have in origin this year. We, we're going to have to find a way to combat these incredibly big, very athletic and sublimely talented forwards Queensland has. So um, I watched that game with a different kind of filter. I was looking at it from an origin perspective. Um, pretty crappy game in many ways, um, you know, but yeah, it was, yeah, game's a game. Yeah, I'll, I mean, I will highlight one player before we move off this game, and that was David Fafita. I, I don't think that he's gotten enough credit this season. His work rate's mm. right up. He, his work rate is a hell of a lot better. His involvement's better and his impact's better, and he's not making the errors. So, I mean, in this game against the Broncos, and again, the Broncos are a table-topping team, quality outfit this season. He had two offloads, a line break, a line break assist, four tackle breaks. More importantly, he only had one error and zero penalties conceded. But even more importantly than that, he ran the ball 15 times. And it's obviously been a a real criticism of him in the past. And I've been very critical of David Fafita. He's a very talented forward and he just hasn't been there game to game. And this year he has. And I find it startling that it hasn't been picked up on more. He hasn't gotten more praise because I thought he was really good on the weekend again, and he's been pretty outstanding for a few weeks now and good across the whole season with an increased work rate and less errors, and his impact's been really good, and he still hasn't scored a try this year. This is the longest drought in his career as a try scorer, but he's arguably made just as much impact without the tries, yet you still see these origin teams, and you're not really getting a lot of looking for David Fafita, a lot of people talking about loyalty. Absolutely no chance Fafita doesn't get selected for origin this year, no chance at all. 
There shouldn't be. Um, it's, I mean, as a New South Welshman, it, it makes me happy that there's um, even some media pundits and also ex-Queenslanders and stuff saying, oh, you know, maybe he can get in if he, you know, gets his form where it needs. It's like he's, his form's been great. I, I thought he was outstanding um, the last few weeks and on the weekend again against the Broncos side. Uh, let's move along to, let's talk about your Dragons because I want to leave the Penrith game until last because we're going to follow that on with a different segment. But your Dragons... In a shootout with Canberra, ended up losing at Gio Stadium 20 to 14. Probably one of these games, Marty, where it was, um, I guess it didn't have the high quality uh, of some of the other games because obviously the Raiders and the Dragons are nowhere near the top eight at the moment or where they should be. But in saying that, it had some really quality turning points that were real highlights. Mm-hmm. I know as a Dragons fan, you'll be exceptionally disappointed. I, I thought the Dragons overall were. Pretty rudderless when it came to getting points and to putting themselves in positions to score. They just they just didn't seem to be able to convert. And against the Raiders side, they probably should be able to. Um, but the the big thing for me, which is arguably the match winner, was Hudson Young doing that steal and running yeah. just about the length of the field to score that try in the seventy third minute, which really you know put the game to bed. Tatau Moga went in in the seventy eighth minute to make it interesting, but they missed the conversion. It, that Hudson Young try though. Great individual effort, probably one of the best individual efforts of the round, if not the best. Yeah, look, I mean, I think the Dragons would have to win the award as the most stupid team in the competition. Um, I mean, bear in mind, they started by running out the wrong hooker. You know, I mean, <laughs> And it cost them an interchange too. <laughs> I, I can't remember that happening in, in my life. You know, I just don't see how that's even possible. It shows the communication breakdown. Um, and then they fell for three strips, um, two of which led uh, either to points immediately or points within that set of six. And I mean, if, if you know anything about Canberra, you know that they love strips. You know, if you know anything about Canberra, you know the king of all of the strippers, not the pole type strippers, but the footy type strippers, um, <laughs> is the bloke that took it off them to then run the length of the field to score, you know. So scrappy, 27 combined errors, 41 missed tackles for the Raiders, 41 missed tackles for the Dragons. It was a bit of a shocker. Um, there, there were some things that came out of the game. I thought Sloan once again showed how beautiful a skill set he has. Um, he's a young bloke. He's going to struggle from time to time. He's still learning the game. and He's definitely still learning the mental side of the game. But as a Dragon supporter, you know, the, the next decade really comes down to that axis of um, Sullivan, Amon and Sloan. And, uh, you know, so uh, that was great. Um, I think, unfortunately, it showed me that Croak is probably not going to make that magic 300-game target that he so desperately wants and probably deserves. Um, he, he missed eight tackles. Um, he's just not at that level anymore. Um, and it also showed me that um, Matt Tomoko was well and truly on a path to becoming one of the best centres in the competition. So individually, there were some quite good performances in that game. Uh, collectively, I think both teams would be pretty disappointed with that. Yeah, agree. I was going to mention Sloan too. Had 23 runs, two offloads, line break try assist. Uh, his work rate's up, which is good, and he's getting his confidence back yep. up, which is positive as well. Another guy I'll mention, uh, I've been a, a big Corey Horsburgh fan for many, many years. <laughs> like two years ago, I was like, the Roosters need a, a middle forward. Please sign Corey Horsburgh because at the time he was uncontracted and it was like, you know, the, the Raiders were going to give him a small contract and no one was knocking on the door. And I was like, I don't understand. I love Corey Horsburgh. Can't we just sign him to 300 grand a year for four years and just throw him on the bench and or start him or whatever we need to do? I, I wanted him at the Roosters bad. Yeah. Now he's being touted as a an origin bolter. I'll tell you what, he's now gone back-to-back weeks of playing 70-plus minutes. He played 70 minutes on the weekend against the, the Dragons, had 40 tackles, 
14 runs with an offload. And he just generally is just a great middle forward at the moment. He's a big body. He's a real footballer. And I love that he's a throwback too. He had no errors or penalties, but I just love that he's a throwback, right? You look at him, he's not one of those big chiseled athletic guys. He kind of looks like one of those park footy front rowers that just trudges around and does his job, but he just gets his head in everything. He just loves it. He's just a big fella and he just plays the game. And it's really refreshing to see those type of guys. There's nothing real technical about how he plays. He's not much of a thinker. He, he's not one of those big chiseled athletes, like I said. He just he just loves it. And I, I just I really am a big Corey Horsburgh fan, and I'm glad to see they've started him. 70 minutes on the weekend, I, I thought he looked just as good throughout the whole thing, and, and I reckon he's on his way this season to a career year. Yeah, the only thing with him I would suggest is that if I was Ricky, and Ricky is a very difficult man to predict, um, I love Horsburgh as well. So I think he's an absolutely awesome old school prop, um, but he's a prop. And in the modern game, you need a different style of person to be playing lock. And to me, the person yep. at the Raiders whose skill set is 100% suited to that position um, is Hudson Young. You know, he has an absolutely, he, has, he is one of the best ball playing back rowers in the game today. You don't see it very often. He's much more renowned as like an angle runner, a hole runner. But when I look at sort of, how we're in Naira and know what he can achieve on the edge. And then if you look at Whitehead, who's coming towards the end of his career, but he's an edge player as well. Um, the bloke at the Raiders, who I think probably should be playing lock, is actually Hudson Young. Um, and I think unless uh, Ricky has a bit of a think about how he re-engineers that team, the team that I saw run out on the week, they're going to really struggle opening up opposition sides. They just don't have enough class in the outside backs, and I think they've got the wrong bloke at 13. So while I agree with everything you said about him, um, my suggestion would be he's an absolutely epic, barnstorming, old-school prop, and he is definitely not a lock in the modern game. Yeah, I agree with you. I, I've always seen him as a prop. Uh, I would actually put, I think Hudson Young works at 13, but the, the problem is that they need to have a big sacrifice in the starting pack. I would actually drop Josh Papali to the bench. Same. I'd have him as an impact bench yep. forward. He, not to be too critical, but he looks far from the fittest that he's been this season. And it's mm. not just him running out of steam and stuff. It's just physically. Like five years ago, he was a bit of a brick. And now he just, he does not look as fit at all. He does not look as chiseled. He looks like he's carrying some extra weight. And look, to the end of his career, that could happen. But at the same time, he's been criticised in the past for not putting the work in the off-season. I would actually have him off the bench. Yeah, 100%. I think that works out really well for them. And then it also works out well because the problem with moving someone like Hudson Young is he's such a good edge back row, as you saw in the weekend. He was a match winner. He's great on the edge as well. He can attack out there, score a lot of tries. Who do you replace him with? But they've got someone already made in a replacement in Corey Harawira Naira, who's right. a really good edge back rower. So yeah. putting him in, they don't actually lose anything and they get that impact of Papa Lee off the bench. So I'd do that. And if they had that against the Dragons on the weekend, Marty, I, I think that would have gone even better. Um, but, you know, we, we digress. The the Parramatta Eels and the Bulldogs. This one, I actually feel sorry for the Bulldogs. They only had the one try, Paul Alamodi in the 50th minute. But realistically, it was all... Parramatta Hills, uh, it was always going to be a tough ask, but the, the dogs, I, I just, they've lost Kikau for this game for about three months coming into it. Um, they've ended up with multiple injuries week on week. Now they've got the Fox out as well. Ended up starting Ockenball on the wing. 
he's been playing off the bench as a utility slash back rower. He made several defensive issues on the weekend. But then, of course, they had Carraz go down in the 11th minute as well, who's been arguably their best outside back. It's It just keeps coming on and piling on for the dogs. And unfortunately, the people they're putting in, like starting with Dell as an edge back rower and also Ockenbore as a winger, coupled with the other guys that are sort of fringe starting players, it's just meant they just didn't have the quality on the park. Parramatta took advantage of it. They pretty much did what you expected Parramatta to do. They had Josh Hodgson out. Didn't matter. Young hands came in and did a good job. Um, as far as the players go, Sebo just keeps scoring tries, which I just think is crazy because his work rate is so low. <laughs> like he doesn't do, he doesn't have that many runs, but he's got he's got one of the best conversion rates of tries per run out of anybody, just about. And Will Penasini, um, young fella in the centres who just seems to be improving game by game. Oh, I thought he was outstanding with his couple line breaks, try and try assist as well. So pretty much how we thought this one would go, I guess. Yeah, um, I mean, the Dogs have got a lot of injuries. Uh, losing Carraz on that right side was a huge blow for them. The left side, at the start of the year, we are all thinking, looking at that left side going, you know, you've got a, a state of origin, 5-8 and Burton. Um, then you've got Addo Carr on the wing. You've got Kikau coming in. All the focus of the Dogs was on that left-hand side attack. Um, and it just didn't function. And then they got injuries. Uh, but the good news was for the dogs that the right side attack really sparked up. Um, and now they've got injuries there as well. So you throw into that some uh, some injuries in the pack. They finally got Tavita Pangai Jr. back, and he just he had a crazy game. TPJ, God, he's fun to watch, but God, he's a nutcase. Um, Everything's an offload. Six offloads that game. Six offloads in forty-eight minutes. But if you looked at him, he was like every single contact. All he wanted to do was offload. Like he he was just desperate to get the ball out. You know, you know, growing up as a footy player, you're always taught you know never pass the ball to someone unless they're in a better position than yourself. Um, that just doesn't exist for Penguin. You know, it's just get the ball to him. You know, and so he's a he's a fun 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 player to watch, but he's mad. Um, and I think Marnie, wow, they did a job on Reed Marnie. The Eels knew every single thing he was going to do. They knew that he often takes one step too many out of dummy half before he passes the ball, so he was sacked repeatedly. Uh, his defence has been shocking this year, Marnie. He's not missing tackles that like are necessarily leading to tries, but he's he's really got kind of cardboard shoulders at the moment. He's just slipping off things. And, you know, I've been really disappointed in Reed Marnie. Like when they signed him, I sort of thought, oh, I, I can see what they like in him. Um, but I have to say in a team that's been struggling, you really need your senior players to stand up. So um, Reed Marnie is, is a shocker. I, I think the interesting thing for this week is that Oluwapu has been named on that extended bench um, and, you know, he's going to be an absolute weapon, this kid. I've seen some highlights of him, and, and he is just unreal, you know. So I don't know what they'll do with him. I don't know if he's going to maybe come on and just play 20 minutes off the bench, but he, he's a bloke to really keep an eye on. So for the Dogs, you know, they'll get some players back from injury. Um, for the Eels, well, you know, when a bloke like Madison comes on and runs for 170 metres in 61 minutes, plus his offloads, plus his line break assists and try assists, I mean, what, wow, what a, what a back line that is. Sorry, what a, what a back row that is. If you have a look at those three players, um, they're all very different, 
um, they all have that same ability to offload. So, um, yeah, I like a lot of what I'm seeing at the Eels. I know they started badly, but I'm I'm pretty confident they're turning it around now. And, you know, Sean Lane is back. His combination is only going to get better. Um, so pretty soon you're going to have a, hopefully a left and a right side attack, which is functioning because the Eels have been very, very driven by that right edge with Moses and Penasini. Um, and while that's great, um, if you don't have enough variety in your game, teams are able to defend against you. So the Eels are going to have to sort of restructure that a little bit. Um, yeah, not a great game to watch in many ways, but, um, you know, there were some beautiful highlights moments. Yeah, Madison, for me, is it's almost like he had the line put through him for Origin a couple of years ago. Yeah. And it just seems like he has to do 10 times as much as anyone else to be able to break in that side. Like he, at the time, he was there with other back rowers that are currently cemented in the side. And it's at a point now where prospective back rowers have leapfrogged him, like Ola Kuata and Keon Kalamatangi, among others. Whereas he's still just as good to me as what he was two, three years ago when he was in the Blues camp. Um, And also has been there for Origin. So I don't know what else he has to do, but on the weekend he did 22 hit-ups with two offloads, a line break try assist and 29 tackles in only 61 minutes. He's just as good at 13 as what he is on an edge. Uh, I I would have him in my Origin team. The problem is that there's just guys that are incumbents now that are ahead of him, uh, and there's other guys that are young fellas that have been playing outstanding as well. And again, he just seems to be not blacklisted, but just... It seems to be on the nose a little bit from a couple of years ago for whatever reason. So he has to do a bit more than everybody else. But oh, I thought he's outstanding. His numbers on the weekend were great. Marty's a really good one to bring up because I have to say, I don't love being overly critical with players. So I don't, I try not to exaggerate, but that is one of the worst games I remember an individual player playing in recent memory. It was absolutely abysmal. He had three penalties conceded, two errors but he probably had six other errors that are not counted as errors. There was one in particular where he has run the ball. The, the team was under the pump. They were down big at the time. I think they were down by like 18 points and it was around halfway and they'd been starved to possession and they just got into the end of their set on halfway and he ran the ball from hooker at a marker who wasn't square to try and get a penalty. Yeah. And the penalty didn't come. They handed the ball over and Parramatta went straight up to the other end, attacking the line with a new set of six, with the six again, 10 metres out. And it was just such a dumb play from a player who's paid to be a representative level player and a leader in the team. It was just dumb. You don't play for a penalty on the fifth tackle, on halfway, under those game conditions, under those circumstances. And I just thought that summed up his game completely. It wasn't even that he was trying too hard. It was He was overplaying his hand really badly. And you mentioned his service from dummy half. That was something that I mentioned last year. I thought last year he his passing was awful. Yeah, For a is. dummy half, it was really bad. Mm. And it was something that we've seen again this year. I thought he started the season pretty well, but on the weekend, everything was there to see about what's wrong with Reed Marty's game. And he can get better. And certainly two years ago, he was actually a really good hooker. But he's got to get back to that because what he served up on the weekend, if it was a lesser player on a minimum contract, like if Jeremy Marshall King did that at the Bulldogs last year, he'd be dropped. It was that bad. So, yeah, it was really bad. But the Eels keep coming on and and Canterbury need to find something. The last game that we didn't mention was the the Newcastle-Penrith game. And that goes into our uh, next segment, which is going to be the calls for Golden Point to be overhauled. Now, this one, Penrith won 16-15 in the 81st minute, the first minute of the golden point. 
with a one-point field goal to Nathan Cleary. First things first, Newcastle were really brave. They, mm. they, they're playing well above themselves. They're playing well above their talent level in the park, and everybody in Newcastle should be really proud of their team. And they've done that without Caelan Ponga for most of the year. Having said that, um, Penrith did what they needed to, to do to win. They had to play from behind, uh, and I think that the coach wasn't particularly happy with their efforts, but you could see why Penrith are a top-tier side because when the game was on the line, they came forward and they won, and it was their star players that did it. But the controversy out of this in this segment that we're going to have now, Marty, everybody started calling once again. You know, we've had half a dozen golden point games this year, and people just went, you know what? Newcastle didn't even get the ball and golden point in this game. Penrith won it in the 81st minute. It's a farce, you know, and then there's all these different proposals and different things. Can I just say, first of all, the reason that that game ended immediately in golden point is because Newcastle lost it and Penrith won it. Yep. End of. Penrith went from a kickoff at the other end of the field to 32 metres out in a set and just rolled Newcastle across the park and went for an easy field goal. That's it. You know, Newcastle had every right to defend better, to limit the metres, to play better and to stop them from getting to that point. They could have been stopped on halfway and had to be kicking from there and Newcastle would have had a possession. But Newcastle never earned that with their defence. And that's the thing. I I just think that 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 sort of play happens in the 85th minute, the 87th minute, whatever, in golden point. So the first thing's first, Marty. Uh, you know, do you really think that there was a problem with how Penrith won it? Because to me, you know, Penrith earned it and Newcastle lost it. Well, with Golden Point, I think the, the first thing you've got to ask yourself is if you even need a winner. You know, like, is there anything wrong with the draw? Um, I'm sort of not really sure one way or the other how I feel about it. But I think it's interesting because we live in a society which hands out participation awards, right? Like in junior footy, in like under sixes, they don't even keep a score. You know, they don't even have finals. It's just about running around. So it's interesting that this kind of talk about what to do with Golden Point, whether you should be rewarded to lose. It's kind of mirroring what we're seeing in society at a, at a higher level. Um, I personally think learning how to win and how to lose is an important concept of life. And so, you know, having Golden Point and playing on, I think is great. Um, and then the next question then is, should you reward the loser? You know, I, I don't actually see why we need to reward the loser. Yeah, and it's it's interesting too because like I, I sort of threw this back on a few people I was talking to about, including some a couple of media journalists that were posting stuff that I was replying back and forth on. And I was like, well, you know, this somebody loses by one point in the 79th minute. Why does that team that loses by one point that leads the whole game not get any points, but somebody that gets to go to golden point gets a point for participating and still losing? You know what I mean? There's, what's the difference? If you lose 17-16 in the 79th or 80th minute, you get nothing to lose. And yet you want someone that loses in the 81st minute to get a point. Put it this way, the Anzac Day match between your boys and my boys is coming up on Tuesday, right? If you and I decide to have a $20 bet on the game and you win, when I hand over my $20, are you going to sit down and go, oh, hey, Marty, you're a good bloke, here's a fiver back? <laughs> uh, I'm not gonna. Um, and by the way, you'll be paying me the twenty if we bet on that game. But beside <laughs> the point, <laughs> that's my thought process of it anyway. You know, um, for a while there, I, I kind of toyed with the idea when I was thinking about it a while back. Sort of thinking, well, if you if you go to extra point and you lose, is there anything wrong with giving the winning team two points and the losing team one? Um, 
And then I sort of thought, well, no, not really, because there's only two points available in a game and in a in a match, and so you probably shouldn't suddenly have a scenario where where there's three points combined across that game, you know. And then so Phil Rothfield came out, um, and he he came up with his idea, which oh, was oh god, I can't I can't stand yeah. the stupid point scoring system that Rothfield came up with, which by the way has been thrown up before. On the one side, I sort of understand it because it sort of mirrors the point I made before but actually does it in a better way, which I hadn't thought of, and that is that, you know, well, let's just award four points, and that way the if the game goes into extra time, we can award three to the winner, one to the loser. There's still a two-point difference, and the total number of points adds up to four, and I, I believe that's what they do in AFL. I don't know. I don't really watch that sport. Um, and so I actually sort of can see some merit to that, um, but... My personal belief is that I can't stand how woke the game is becoming. Um, and I just think, you know, in, in sport, you win or you lose, you know, and if you win, you take the chocolates. If you lose, you cry into your beer. And there's nothing wrong with that, you know. So I don't think I would change anything in Golden Point. I wouldn't change the Golden Point concept itself. The TV ratings want it. I wouldn't change the way the points are, are, are awarded. I would just keep it the same. I've got no problems with it at all. No, and that's a great point because it was the next thing I was going to say. The thing that really irks me about this is the essence of sport, when you drill down raw to what sport is, is it's a contest where you end up with a winner and a loser. You don't end up with a little bit of one, a little bit of the other. You know, someone gets a bit of a win but not a full win and all this other rubbish. You have a winner and a loser. It doesn't matter anything that happens throughout that time because you have a lot of time in a game 80 minutes or 90 minutes or however long to be able to decide who gets that. And whoever wants to take it, take it. Because at the end of the day, sport isn't fair. There is often a lot of things that don't go right or don't go wrong or or, or go wrong, I should say. But at the same time, there's a winner and a loser. That's what sport is. Don't overcomplicate it. We get a winner, we get a loser. Where I will defend these calls, and I always like to give two, two sides to every argument, what I will say, okay, I don't like Golden Point and people might be surprised after everything I just said. I don't like Golden Point. Uh, but at the same time, I don't think that it has to stop at 80 minutes. One of the big bugbears that I have with Golden Point is that I think the team should be allowed to decide by playing football. And to me, Golden Point has always been this thing where you, for 80 minutes you get rugby league and then for however long after the 80 minutes, you get this hybrid of rugby league, which isn't really playing rugby league. It's playing a portion of the game to try and get field position and try and just have this field goal a thon to get points. And it's, it's, not, it's not rugby league. I have always been critical about getting rid of extra time because to me, why not just play five minutes each way? It, it, there was never anything wrong with that to begin with. And I will even counter all the other arguments by saying, if Golden Point is so good, then why, when we get to a finals game, do we not play it? <laughs> you know, like if it's finals and all these big games and occasions, we play extra time. So you're telling me that it, it, it's okay, it's, it's the best thing that we should do. Oh, but when we get to the big games, we can't do it because it's not the best option. If it's not the best option for all the games, do the best option for all the games. And that is play 10 minutes of football. You will get teams with relatively equal possession and opportunity to win it. You will get teams playing actual football as opposed to going for all these field goals all the time and stuff. But you'll still get the opportunity to go for field goals and win by one if tactically that's what you want. It's just not going to end with that. All the talk 
many years ago when Golden Point came in, Marty, was, oh, it's, it's too much of a strain on players with extra time and all this stuff. Look, it's 10 minutes. And if at the end of the 10 minutes there's a draw, there's a draw, and that's the same as Golden Point anyway. The average Golden Point game goes for about six and a half minutes. What's an extra three minutes? It doesn't make any difference, but it does fix all of our problems. Yeah, I agree with everything you said there. Well, let's move along. Uh, Dragons predicament and their coaching search. Now, this is one close to your heart, Marty, so I will let you pretty much lead the way on this. I will just say there has been a lot made of some of this where, you know, it's, I, I think the media coverage I've said before in this, I think has been relatively unfair as far as, well, if you aren't going to extend him, then, you know, just sack him now. And, and even this week it was like, well, you know, Fox Sports were saying, why didn't they just sack him last year? And it's like, well, the Dragons had him for another year and a half on, on contract. They wanted to give him an opportunity to see what he could do. And at the end of the day, you don't just want to pay out coaches all the time for half their contracts to move them on. You can't just keep doing that financially from a business perspective. It, obviously, there's an argument, Marty, that Hook was never the right coach to begin with, and we all saw this coming. That's irrelevant, though. You know, at the end of the day, they gave him that contract. They needed to see it out. They needed to see what he could do. And I always thought that it was totally fair to the point that it's common business sense to say, look, we've contracted you. We're going to let you see the season out and see what you can do. At the moment, you're not performing. The team's not performing and we're not happy with it. If you can turn it around, maybe we'll give you another deal. But if you can't turn it around, we are looking at other options because we need to, because we need to win football games. To me, it made complete sense, Marty. But as a Dragons fan, as someone with their ear to the ground on the Dragons, how do you see all of that with the hook saga and you know him staying or going and everything? Uh, I remember a few years back, I, I employed a... Um a management consultant to come and have a look at one of the companies I had um, just wasn't really performing. And this bloke said something which I, I've never forgotten and it became an absolute mantra of mine in business. And that is just remember that A's employ A's, B's employ C's and C's employ E's. Um, the fact of the matter is our board is a long way below an A. And so when we're employing people, we're constantly looking too far down the ladder. Um, and so over time, that's become a bit of a culture problem at the Dragons. You know, winning is a habit. Um, and I think, unfortunately, the Dragons have just forgotten how to win. And a lot of that is the difficulties at board level. Um, you know, we are a merged entity. On the one side, you've got, you know, the Dragons Leagues Club. And before that, you had the Illawarra Leagues Club. Um, and that's kind of a who you know and who you blow kind of concept. Um, they're still mired in that sausage sizzle and sort of beer mentality and they just haven't modernised. You know, they, they just don't get it. You know, the people that you need to rise to the top are just not within the Dragons Club and unfortunately I don't think that's going to change. Um, on the win side, you've got a private investor so they can just put whoever they want in. You know, if you get a smart owner, great. Um, clubs like the Rabbits have done it. Um, if you get a bad owner, you've got problems, you know. So win's been really disappointing. So you've got... Two boards that just aren't actually functioning well and then there's a massive divide between the boards and so a lot of what you're seeing with the talk around the coach at the moment is a reflection of the divide within the club itself. So when you talk about the predicament, you know, the, the predicament of the Dragons is very simple. Um, a fish rots from the head down. So we need to change something at the head if we want to actually fix what's going on. So from my perspective, I was um, sort of kind of in favour of Hook and against his signing back a couple of years ago. The thing that I was in favour of is I was just so sick of the nepotism and cronyism 
and the jobs for the boys mentality at the Dragons. And so when all of a sudden someone came along that statistically had an excellent success record um, and was not related to the club in any way, like he wasn't an ex-player, he didn't really have mates on the board, it wasn't like that, I was stoked. Um, but then when he started coaching, you started to see this style that was just, I mean, it went out in the 80s. I mean, he is just so off his face with team selections and strategy and i mean he's just really one of those guys you see this a bit with some of the older coaches they really dig the heels in and kind of go well you know it's worked for me in the past and so well, that's great but the past is the past there's been a lot of rule changes in rugby league and you've got a lot of young kids coming through and, and the people themselves that you're dealing with are changing and so if you can't change you're in trouble you know it's, it's very hard to change other people so if you actually want to be effective as a business leader you need to actually change yourself right and the problem is Hook showed clearly to me in his first two seasons that he was not capable of change. Um, and so I agitated very, very hard for him to be dumped in the off-season. So I was very disappointed that they went into this season. And, and bear in mind, there was a pretty strong chance that we could have got um, Fitzgibbon if we if we'd hit him at the right time. And so by holding on for another year, we lost that opportunity. You're talking about a club that had Dimitri um and he was wide-handed by mcgregor and so you're talking about a club that has actually had some very very useful coaches within their ranks and other targets that they could have hit if they'd done it at the right time um but they took too long and and so when we started the season with with hook in charge again i just thought to myself i can't see this changing um, but there's a lot of really good juniors coming through and there's actually a lot of really positives happening in the Dragons at the moment, back of house with the board members and the, you know, $40 million centre of excellence and we've got some insanely good, talented young footballers coming through. So I kind of saw this season as a write-off um, and I kind of wanted to start building towards the future because the future starts now. Yeah, I agree with you as far as um, it was a bad decision to put him in. And I was critical of it at the time as well. I never thought it would work. Yeah, yeah, I remember that. Uh, yeah. And I also uh, expected the results that were basically gotten from, from Hook's tenure. And unfortunately for him, like he seemed like a good guy and stuff, but that's also like, I think, driven a lot of the media narrative. And, I, I, you know, I'm, I'm pretty critical about the media bias and stuff. And it's one of the reasons why I like doing these podcasts because there's no media or team affiliation or anything. I just sort of say it how it is. Yeah. And I think with Hook, yeah. he's he's on things like Fox all the time and he's he's pretty good mates with a lot of the panellists and the media and the journos and stuff. So they all like him and he's a good bloke. But because of that, I don't think you get real impartial news on it, you know, because they're all, they're all pushing for him to be hard done by and stuff. The reality is he hasn't been any good and they haven't gotten the results. And football is about getting results. Now, we can all probably agree, and every Dragons fan, but every rugby league fan can probably agree, at this point, it was a bad signing. They should have made other coaching appointments. They should have done other things, but they didn't do it. Um, I just uh, The thing that always sticks to me is that I just think that it's being made too much, that they're, they're biding their time to make the right decision, which is what I think they're doing now, right? You know, what's the point of uh, paying Hook out and, and getting someone to step in that isn't going to be the coach down the track anyway? You know, and I, I understand that your thing about you know, the future is going to start now. They need to start rebuilding and whatever. But they're not even at the halfway point of the season either. Now, we all know that they're not going to have some um, throwback season where they go for a, a reverse run where, you know, they're leading the cop halfway through the year and then they go and run down the bottom. It's not going to go the other way for them this year where they're at the bottom and they're going to run at the top. But at the same time, you know, I just, I don't see the point. If they've got some guys that might be good coaches for them that they're going to 
you know, look at over the next few months. Why do they have to sack Hook? You know, why do they have to throw him out the door? Why don't they just go through their process and stuff? And if Hook did manage to miraculously turn it around while he's there this year, then maybe it's food for thought. You know, maybe something happens. It's unlikely, but I just don't get the narrative that, you know, they're, they're doing the wrong thing by him as well, I guess. Yeah, because he's getting his he's getting the decisions wrong. You know, if you look at the the Dragons at the moment, like I watched the reserve grade game with um against the Raiders, um and the backs the Dragons backs are just so slow. Like our, our recruitment, we're just getting the wrong body shapes. There's so many things we're getting wrong, right? And I I, I certainly don't blame Hook for that. As I said to you before, I fish rots from the head down. He's not the head of the Dragons, right? Um, but in that game, there were some absolutely outstanding performances. You know, the um, edge back rower was was absolutely brilliant. And you've also got Toby Couchman, who's had a really good season this year at the Dragons. Now, Toby Couchman will be the Dragons' next captain. I can almost guarantee you that. And he's an edge back rower. And he's a modern edge back rower. He's fast in a team that's slow. He's got footwork and he's got one thing which we desperately need. He's got a massive football brain on him, you know. So as soon as we get a scenario where we get a suspension with Jaden Sewer, why are we not getting one of these two younger blokes onto the edge? Why do we go back to Ben Murdoch Masilla? Right. The other bloke that really stood out, I, I wanted to watch um Williami Fafita because I've seen highlights of him. He looked really good, but I've never seen him play. Um he played well without being great, but Louis Tosa absolutely ripped them to shreds. And in a team that's been struggling a bit through the middle, our bench started the season and did really, really well. Um now it's sort of fallen back to where it was. And so when all of a sudden you realise you need to bring another player in, you can bring in Louis Toso or arguably Fafita, two sort of new younger players on the rise. You can move one of our two young edge back rowers um, and you get a team that's not only better, but you've got a team that's building for the future. But no, what does he do? He brings Murdoch Masilla at age 31, having played absolutely horrendous football this year. You know, he's making no tackles. He's making almost no runs. How can you reward that? And you see that with Hook constantly. You saw him with McCulloch. McCulloch was the worst hooker I've seen in years. And McCulloch's a great guy. You know, he's, a, he's going to be fantastically successful as a coach. There's a lot of things to like about McCulloch, but the game had passed him by. You know, you saw the same thing with Ben Hunt when he was agitating to make sure he re-signed and he played halfback and pushed Sullivan to one side, then talks about, you know, talks about bringing Bird in to be his halves partner. And so, so we need to get away from this reliance upon old footballers because we know what they offer and it's not enough to win. But within the Dragons at the moment, this is the most excited I've been in years about the younger guys that are coming through. Um, and so we need a coach that's actually going to nurture and develop that talent. We don't have that. We have a guy who's so conservative um, that he's actually, and now he's, now he's shit scared about holding his job. He's not going to worry about the results at the end of the year or where it sets us up for 2024. He's going to worry about the results in the next month. Because if he doesn't get results, he's probably going to lose his job. And we went through this with McGregor. We went through this with Price. You know, you can't constantly let your coach get in a situation where he's underperforming, he's under the pump, and all of a sudden, instead of trying to build into a season, he just keeps making these incredibly conservative selections, which are fundamentally based through selfishness. It's about trying to maintain his own position. So that would be my counter argument to that, is that I've seen enough from Hook to know that he's not going to work. 
we have two very, very good assistant coaches that are a lot more modern than Book. Yeah, it's a good point as far as building for the future. Um, and I can't disagree with it. And they're going to need to. I think the small argument I will give against it is, like, I don't think that they're going to win games. And we both know that they weren't going to have a good season as it was. They were tipped to be at the bottom of the ladder. But every team that goes in, you know, believes that they can compete and they can be a top eight team and all of that. It's only It only was round seven past us by on the weekend. So it's very early in the season still. And I just think that the, the team, was ne- no team's ever going to start building from scratch the first month of the season. You know what I mean? Like you have to give your team the opportunity to win games, to, to do what they do and to show you. Um, but I get what you're saying as far as needing to start to look to the future. I always think that that's sort of the mid-rounds. Like when you get to that buy period, if you're not in the hunt at that point, then maybe start to look to the future. And that's probably still a month away from what a team would normally do, even the, the teams that do it well. Uh, in saying that, I guess the other counter as well is that if you do put an assistant coach in, that coach is going to want, or I shouldn't say an assistant coach, if you're going to put a standing coach in, if you sack hook like last week, that coach is still going to want to earn the job for himself because that's his opportunity and he's going to want to get wins and stuff. So the reality of what happens in those situations is that you need a strong club with strong management that says to that coach as a directive, you're the coach, but we're not happy with where we've gone. This is your directive now. We are to select these players and we are to start to blood the young guys and this is our plan and this is how you're going to be successful in our club's plan of success for this season. Now, to me, there's no reason why they can't make Hook do that. And Hook has always been someone who I think is fairly malleable. Like even with his job going down the toilet, he, he seems pretty fair and common sense about it. That that's sort of the way it is and he understands. So, you know, if you've got a strong management, Marty, why don't you just say, look, we're paying you for this year. You're on contract. We're not winning games. We want you to, to start selecting the young guys. We want to see these guys in first grade. You know, and to me, I think that he would actually do it. Like summer coaches might not, but I sort of think that he would. And that's the same situation you're going to be in if you have a stand-in coach, right? Yeah, I mean, look, I, I can see your point. I don't personally believe in in coaching by committee. But if you want someone to succeed, you can't really take them out of their comfort zone. They need to want to be there to begin um, or it does build a degree of resentment. And so the younger coaches they've got at the Dragons at the moment, the assistants, um, I'm actually very impressed with these guys, um, particularly the bloke, I can't remember his name, but he's an ex-school teacher. He's only like 33 or 34. Um, I'm hearing really good reports about these guys. Um, They're very popular in the playing group. So um, I really do feel like we would be better off just going, no, let's move him on. Um, let's choose our new coach. And bear in mind, there are lots of people around at the moment that if they do become the new coach, they can probably start next week, you know. So I guess that's the other thing to take into consideration is that, you know, while you could run an assistant coach through and that would certainly be, you know, a a temporary thing, there are lots of coaches that could start straight away. So um, in terms of uh, recruiting players for next year and in terms of turning the team around, in terms of having sort of a, a sense of moving in the right direction, I, I sort of feel like we could probably make some moves sooner rather than later. I'll finish off by asking you one question about the whole saga. Do you think the Dragons are being unfair by not sacking him, which has been a lot of the media coverage? You know, that they're, it's all been poor hook. 
And, uh, you know, I just, I find that really hard to swallow when Paul Hook's gone so badly in his contract. He hasn't done his job well. But do you think that they're doing badly by Hook by not sacking him? I think they're doing I think they're doing badly by the support base by not sacking him. At the end of the day, the club is about supporters, and this is one thing that I think is lost. You know, I, I look at some of the decisions the Dragons board has made in the last, particularly the last decade, um, but somewhere along the line, they, they seem to have forgotten the fact that this club exists for the supporters, mm. right? We're, we're the guys that make this club work. You know, without us, there is nothing. You know, um, if we're not tuning in to watch it on Fox Sports, if we're not turning up to the games, buying our merchandise, they got nothing, right? Which is the way I sort of felt too when the players started carrying on about about their pay packets. You know, I feel like the supporters are just being forgotten sometimes, um, and the Dragons board is particularly um, guilty of pretty much treating it like their own personal plaything. Um, and I just don't think that's fair on the St George supporter base. Like we've had enough. Um, so, yeah, I, I think Dragon supporters are being ripped off by this. So make your decision, work out who you want and get him or get her if that's the case. I don't care what the gender of the coach is. Just get someone. Just get someone. <laughs> get someone to coach him. Just get someone. someone. We'll finish on that one. So next topic, Sam Walker dropped. We alluded to it a bit earlier. So ahead of round eight, Sam Walker's been sensationally dropped. There's a Rooster support I did not see it coming at all. And, look, it's gotten a huge amount of media coverage. I am a bit torn on this one. So, Marty, I will really, really be interested in your input. To me, I, I didn't see it coming. I thought that the first couple of games of the season, I was actually quite impressed with Sam Walker. I thought that he started the season quite well. And then the last few games, he's been quite poor, culminating in last game, which was his worst of the season, which he made a lot of errors in and gave away penalties and, and missed a lot of tackles and just was not was not good. In saying that, to me, I never saw it coming because he's a 20-year-old half that I think is exceptionally talented and he's going to be a representative half of the future. He's only young despite the first grade games that he's played and he's also someone who I think is going to have a very long first grade career as one of the better halves in the competition. So I tended to think that in a team of veterans like the Roosters, I just it never crossed my mind that he was going to be dropped. Now, you have someone like Phil Gould that throws his boot in after the fact. Captain Hindsight says, oh, I know, I'm surprised they took him this long to drop him. I would have dropped him ages ago, basically. Like, that's just silly. Like, to me, it's they went on a, a run last year where they basically won for the best part of three months of football on a massive run into the semifinals. And that was with Sam Walker there. You know, they were playing fine with this current combination. So, I was surprised by the dropping. Um, initially, I was annoyed about it at Robbo, but then I thought more about it. And it sort of made a little bit of sense to me because to me, you know, oh, I don't ever think that Sam Walker is going to be out of the side long term. And I've said this in the Supercoach podcast, like I could see Sam Walker back in a fortnight. He's not going to play New South Wales Cup for the year. And I, I was actually flabbergasted that I saw a couple of people sink the boot in the roosters and say, oh, well, this is what Robbo does. He drops his halves and he blames them. Look at what Flanagan did. Flanagan was dropped and never to be seen again. And in three years, he hasn't really proven anything because he's not a first-grade half still. You know, like, it's a totally different scenario and it's apples and oranges because you drop players for different reasons. The more I thought about Robbo dropping him, the more it reminded me of the old days, which you'd, you'd be very used to, where it's just a genuine... I've got a young half that's still learning the game, that's still struggling. 
let him beat up on some second-grade opposition, get parts of his game right that I need him to do better that he hasn't been able to do at NRL level. And when he does that, I'll just throw him back in and he's going to be better for it. That used to not be a story 15 years ago. It, it somehow has become always bigger than what it is when that happens sometimes, you know, and sometimes it is bigger than what it is. Sometimes it's outing a guy and he's not going to return to first grade. Sometimes it's trying to get a guy off your books and trying to make him leave or whatever. It's not the case for me with Sam Walker. So I can see what Robbo's doing. I can see doing it earlier in the season rather than later can help them long-term. Uh, I don't see it as something that's, you know, throwing Sam Walker to the side. So I think that some of the media coverage has been overblown, certainly when it's like things coming out like, oh, Sam Walker's camp's unhappy with Kronk's style and all this stuff, blah, blah, blah. Like, I don't believe any of this stuff. Like, to me, it is just normal football decisions. But did you see it differently than what I have? No, so I was really surprised by that. Um, I'm a massive Walker fan, and I have no doubt he will be Queensland's um, halfback for years to come. Um, his form's down, but, I mean, the Roosters have been down this year, and as I touched on earlier, well, it's hardly surprising. I mean, look how many injuries they have. You know, you're talking about a team that's had to blood a whole heap of young props because their, their starting props have been injured or suspended. Um, you've also got a new hooker, and it always takes time for a halfback to, to kind of develop that connection with the hooker. And I reckon Brandon Smith's probably a pretty tough guy to learn the style. Like, he's a, he's a pretty jack-in-the-box type dude. He's not really a controlling hooker. He's kind of an off-the-cuff running kind of hooker. You know, and then because Watson was injured in the preseason, he's also had to try to connect with bench hookers, and they played at least two, if not three, bench hookers. Um, both of his back rows have been injured. Um, so the, the Roosters have been struggling in the middle. They've been struggling on the edge. And then guys like Manu and Tedesco have been down on form. So, And I don't think Kiri's been playing good football either. You know, So I looked at that and I was genuinely shocked. Um I think it's probably Trent Robinson's way of just saying, guys, enough is enough. And if you look at where Sam Walker started struggling, it was when he came up against two of the better teams in the competition. That, you know, you look at his tackles, like 137 tackles, 17 missed tackles. That's not actually unusual for a halfback, right? I mean, it, it sounds bad. Hey, 17 missed tackles. But, you know, something that that's actually far from uncommon. Um, I mean, Amon missed eight last week alone in the Dragons game, you know. So, um, but 11 of those missed tackles came in the last fortnight. Um, his errors and penalties conceded have increased in the last fortnight. So, um, you know, I, I just think that's probably the coach's way of saying, come on, guys, it's time. And I don't think it's necessarily coincidental that he's timing this when the Roosters have a couple of easier games. And also they've got some very important players coming back from injury. You know, you throw Crichton into that side and, you know, Tupanua back into that side. Momorowski's back from injury and they've been really struggling in the centres. Um, you know, I think that's far from coincidental. You know, if you were going to take a bit of a risk and try to, you know, get a bit of confidence into your, your chief playmaker, he's only a kid, um, now, now is the perfect time to actually do it. Um, but, yeah, like you, I can't see him being out for more than two weeks. Um, I think Joey Manu is the best centre in the world. I think he's probably the second best fullback in the world, but I don't think he's very good in the halves. You know, he's a runner. He doesn't create structure. He stifles the back line. Um, he's a bloke that is a super coach person. You love having him because his stats are just insane, right? Um, and when he goes on a tear, he really goes on a tear, and he bloody will on Anzac Day. Um, 
but it's not in the long-term interest for the Roosters to have him in the halves, and, uh, in, and it is in the long-term interest to have a 350-game career player in your in your halves, you know. So um, personally, I was surprised by it. Um, I don't think it'll cause him any damage, um, and as long as it's been handled well in the back, and one thing you know about the Roosters, it's a very, very well-run football club. I don't think it'll cause any damage to Sandy's confidence, you know. So, um, yeah, I mean, if you want to go for it, go for it. I wouldn't have done it, but, you know, whatever. Yeah, and I think the people have short memories too because all the media is beating up on this and like saying, oh, is this the end of Sam Walker's career and just jumping off a cliff with it. People forget that Latrell Latre- Latre- Mitchell got dropped to the Wyong Roos for three weeks and he came back yeah. and was like the best centre in the competition when he came back. Like, Robbo has done this before. When he dropped Latrell Mitchell a number of years back, it wasn't because he wanted him out of the team. It wasn't because he wasn't coming back. He, he spent a few weeks in reserve grade and he, it worked. It actually worked. They were better for it. Yeah, well, as, as you said earlier in the podcast, one thing that um, people that love their footy have to be very careful of, you have to be really careful of the agenda um, when you read articles. You know, there's there's journalists that absolutely hate certain people. There's journalists that love certain people. There's journalists that have a, a beef with particular teams. There's journalists that want to put the boot in whenever they can. Um, I think that's one thing I really enjoy about social media, and I think it's a credit to people like yourself that run these podcasts, is you do actually get a much fairer kind of concept of what's truly going on in the world um, because there is no bias. I mean, right, but when you read... Uh, mainstream media, you, you see all this stuff and it's it's in black and white, literally, right? It's fact. The problem is it's not fact. It's just an opinion. And you have to delve a little bit deeper to truly understand what's going on. So yeah, stuff stuff like what I've been reading about Walker in the in the papers, you know, I'm just not interested. I'm truly I'm just not interested. I can make my own decisions and I would be much more confident in my ability to get a true understanding of a situation by reading social media than by actually reading mainstream media. Yeah, and it's it, and I, I actually find it quite funny that it's being treated by some media as like you, you'd think reading it if you weren't a fan of rugby league and you just started that this is the first play that's ever been dropped or that every play that's been dropped before has been on the outer with the club. You know, it's it's a normal thing. It's it's less normalised these days just because of, I guess, a little bit player ego, a little bit how we manage the game and a, and a lot because we don't have a proper reserve grade set up like we used to where it's not seen the same. We used to have, you know, you used to have all these teams with stars in reserve grade all the time. And we, look, we did see it on the weekend. Like yeah. Angus Crichton was ready to return, right? And he was fully healthy. Now, a lot of clubs would actually go, all right, well, you start on the bench maybe. Either way, you're in the NRL side this week. The Roosters said, no, you're going to go and play a cup game, you know, which is great. But it's, it's just not something that you see as often. Um, but, you know, it's it's there and it used to be there a lot. You used to always come through and you used to always get dropped and need to earn your spot back and, and all this type of stuff, regardless of who you were. So I, I don't see a lot in it. Uh, I, you know, didn't expect it. I didn't want it. But at the same time, you know, it's, I understand the process and I don't think that Sam Walker's on the outer at all. He's still got another two years after this year, everyone. So that's something to not forget. He's got three years on his contract, including this season. The Roosters are not trying to get rid of Sam Walker. And I think that he'll come back and be even better when he does. New segment, Listener's Corner. This is one where I get a question from the listeners or a topic from the listeners that they'd love to hear discussed and we run with it. This one's about Kalen Ponger and the Knights. So... One of the followers on Twitter asked, uh, basically, in a nutshell, 
where does Ponga currently fit in the Knights? Because, you know, they've been playing really well without Kalen Ponga, which is surprising how well they've been playing. Uh, and now he's coming back in. Are they Were they better off not having Kalen Ponga? And where does he fit in State of Origin? Are they actually going to put him back in the Origin side and he's going to leave the Newcastle Knights side again? What does his outlook look like? I actually do think that the Knights have looked really good without Ponga. Um, I can see a world, Marty, where integrating him could be a little bit of a problem with how they've been playing. But at the same time, if he's fit, motivated and firing, he has the... Like we spoke about um, with the Dolphins team, the Raiders team and even the Dragons team not having quite enough class even when they compete and grind to be able to beat the big teams. You saw that with Newcastle on the weekend. They competed, they grinded out a low-scoring affair and they still lost to Penrith who had more class than they did. Ponga gives the Knights that class. So I do think that um, they will be better with him provided that he's healthy and motivated. Oh, I think that he's going to get picked for State of Origin because Queensland don't drop anyone, do they? Surely they just pick everybody that's ever played for Queensland. Yep, or any other state or any other country. <laughs> Where do you see the Knights with Caelan Ponga and him uh, and him fitting back? Uh, well, Ponga would be in the top five most elite athletes of this generation. You know, he's an absolute freak. It doesn't matter whether he's... If you watch his passing game left and right, if you look at his ability to know when to pass short and when to pass long, if you look at his kicking game, you're, you're talking about a guy that's just next level. So he'll be straight back into that team. Um, he does have a problem with his tackling technique, I have to say. He makes the mistake of lowering his head when he goes into contact. And the problem is even the big props can sidestep nowadays and you don't need to shift by, you know, 10 centimetres and all of a sudden you're no longer hitting the thigh, you're hitting the hip. So um, I, I would imagine he'll come straight back in at 5'8". Um, Miller has been amazing at fullback. Um, I wouldn't be at all surprised to see him defend in a different position, though. So whether they'll shift him to the wing or whether they'll shift him to fullback in defence, I think they will try to find a way to hide him, um, but he'll be straight back in. The thing that I think is interesting is that um, with Ponga being out, the Knights have been absolutely amazing, right? And if you look at some of the performances of guys like Crossland and Gamble and Mann, I'll be interested to see how they fit all of them in because um, they haven't had the size with the problems with the Saifidi brothers in particular and Hetherington, and so they've kind of thrown a, a smaller, much more dynamic um, quite strong attacking team at them with a lot of footwork before the line, and it's really been working for them. So it's an interesting proposition for the coach. If he can work out how to get that style, it's almost unique to the Knights, you know. Um, so I actually will be really interested to see how the Knights season unfolds with Ponga, but to think that he's not going to waltz straight back into 5-8 is crazy. And to think he's not going to be selected for state of origin if he's fit is equally crazy. He'll be straight in. They're a loyal mob up north. Yeah, I agree. And I think it might be a week or two of uh, a teething problems fitting Ponga back in with how they've been playing, but uh, it won't take very long for his class to shine, provided again that he's healthy, remains healthy, and is motivated to be there and uh, yeah. performing. Barnsley spray of the week. <laughs> Sin bin epidemic. I cannot believe where the game has gone. And part of my <laughs> non-enjoyment of late has been this. We have got 44 players sent to the sin bin in 56 games of footy so far this year. That's yeah. almost a sin bin every game. There's seven out of every eight games, every round, you have people sin binned on average. 
That is insane. And it is ridiculous when you actually look at the sin bins, it becomes even worse. I think my biggest problem with it, Marty, is we've forgotten as a game, and certainly I think some fans have, there's a difference between a penalty and a sin bin. And a sin bin used to always be something that was exceptionally bad. It was so far beyond a penalty that you had to punish it more. And sending someone off the field for 10 minutes in a game of rugby league is a massive punishment. That is huge. And now we're getting, some teams getting two or three sin bins because we're, instead of penalising, just sending guys off. I think it's crazy and it's ruining the the spectacle. It's ruining rugby league. Yep, Barnsley's been massively cliche with that. I don't care. It's 100% my honest opinion. It really does such a knock-on effect for a football contest to have someone in the bin. You'd want to make sure you're putting them there for a good reason. I would say at least half of the bins that we've had out of those 44 have been terrible binnings and another dozen have been questionable. Uh, At this point, in a lot of past seasons, you've probably got about a third as many of those sin bins. So something's been done differently. When you have a look at the actual bins, I'm going to use Roos's examples on the weekend, which Marty will use some different ones, so I'll give him some other talking points. But we had one with Brandon Smith, okay? He had a high tackle with his arm coming across and whacking somebody in the head. The person was coming around from another tackle and had gone down and ducked. And they got hit from a shot that would have been a normal shot had they not ducked. Okay, it still hit him high and it's a defender's responsibility. Totally right. You know, it's a it's an easy penalty. But it is such an ordinary high tackle penalty. To have somebody sent to the bin for that is ridiculous. The other thing that we're doing in these instances too, which you saw in that Roosters game, but I'm going to highlight that Manly game as well, is in the Manly game as well against Melbourne Storm, you saw multiple players on either side laying down because they knew that they were going to get a penalty. We used to be in a spot a few years ago where we understood not to be looking at everything through the bunker. And it became a point where only chargeable offences could be looked at from the bunker. And now that sort of just dissipated and people have forgotten as a fan base and we've forgotten as a game that that's actually how it's meant to work. So now we're actually creating these instances where we're going to say, oh, we are actually going to cite that. So, you know, now we can review it. When the reality is it goes to the match review committee and they spend 30 seconds looking at it and it gets thrown out. We had a hip drop tackle from Preston a couple of weeks ago where he spent time in the bin for it, where he was trying to steal the ball and try to reef it out and lost his feet. And he got sent to the bin because it was a reportable offence. Nothing happened at the match review committee. We're getting this so incredibly wrong. It is ridiculous. The hip drops we've gone on about in the past sprays, so I'm not going to spray it again, Marty, but I will finish my spray by saying the Radley one, he's gone to tackle him, he's gone over the top of him and been shrugged off and he hasn't let go of his shoulder and he's ended up on his back, which comes down on his legs. By definition, he comes down on the back of his legs. By definition, 50% of tackles come back on somebody's legs. It's We have to decide what the criteria for all this stuff is. When is the bunker allowed to intervene? Because at the moment it's happening all the time. What's the difference between a sin bin and a penalty? How do we get consistency and what criteria are we actually using? At the moment, it's all over the place. It's resulting in sin bins everywhere. And it's an absolute joke for me. Follow up your, your comment about the sin bins and how how much it's risen. Um, you mentioned 46 so far in seven rounds. Last year, after seven rounds, there was only 28. The year before, 2021, after seven rounds, there was only 16. And if you go all the back to 2014, after seven rounds, there was only three. 
So in eight years, we've gone from three to 44. So that's a hell of a clampdown, right? 78% um, of the sin bins this year were for two offences. So they're late shots and high shots, okay? So um, the question is, has it gone too far? Because I, I have no problem with sin bins as long as it's used in the right circumstance. Um, I think to understand a lot of what's going on, you have to understand that Volandis is terrified of a court case. You know, if you look at... Uh, what happened in America um, and to a lesser extent the court case in England. Um, if he doesn't act in certain areas, he does hold the game in a very precarious position and I would suggest that there could well be legal prosecution and it would bankrupt the NRL. So I understand why Volanis is doing what he is, but I don't think he's got the balance right. So um, there's really three things that to me are, are kind of the key things to look at with sin binning. One of those is time wasting, and I hate time wasting. It's an absolute gripe of mine. You know, so over the last decade, you've seen wrestling tactics, which we blame the Storm for because they started it. We blame three-man strips. There was constant penalties conceded on your own line. It gives you a chance to reset your defensive line, which all coaches are absolutely determined to do at every possibility. Um, there's penalties conceded off scrum so you can realign your defensive line. Now you've got players lying down after they've been hit by a feather. There's just so much milking of time. Um, and I actually would like the bunker or the referees to crack down more on that part, right? But the things that I don't agree with, well, you've got the late tackles. Um, late tackles, I think they've gone a bit too far, but I don't really mind so much the penalties being given away for some of the late shots. I think it's gone too far, but, you know, that's just footy. It's not going to change. That is just not going to change, right? The thing that irks me the most is this absolutely insane belief, and you mentioned it before, that the defender is responsible for the safety of the attacking player at all times, right? You look at... You know, you see it all the time. A bloke will run into the defensive line. One person comes in and hits him around the legs and his body height drops. The second person is just coming in to make a tackle that would have been a perfect tackle, except that now the, the height has gone downwards and so he hits the guy in the head. There's absolutely no chance a 115 guy tackling a 115 guy with another 115 kilo guy taking out his legs. There's no way he can adjust in time. I mean, it's basic biomechanics. He just can't be held responsible for that. You know, um, you see, you, know, you looked at the, the penalty on the weekend, it wasn't a sin bin, but you look at, you know, the penalty for, you know, for tackling someone and grabbing his hair. It's like, what are you supposed to do? Have a comb with you and just sort of comb the guy's hair before you tackle him. You know, there's so much of this weak stuff that's going on. But the thing that I would really like to be see changed would be for the NRL to recognise that just because someone gets hit in the head, it doesn't necessarily make it the defender's fault. You know, if there's something that's occurred that's led to a change in the body height of the attacking player and so the defenders come in and hit that person, if it's intentional, yeah, okay, great, send in them. But most of these things aren't intentional and I'd have to say at least a half of them to two-thirds of them aren't even reckless. It's just a reality of, of mechanics you just cannot change in a quarter of a second I mean these guys are football players they're, they're not gymnasts you know they're 115 kilos they're not 60 kilos they just don't have enough time to change so that's the thing that I would like to see change in the sin binning I don't have too much wrong with some of it but I would like the the NRL to recognize that just because somebody gets hit high it's not necessarily their fault like you look at guys hit the defensive line the first thing they do is turn their back 
how are you supposed to bring a guy to ground when he has his back turned to you without putting pressure on his neck at some point, right? So they call that as a crusher tackle. The number of crusher tackles I've seen penalised and sin-binned this year that are not remotely crusher tackles is just out of control. You know, you look at some of it and think to yourself, have you guys ever played the game? Because if you did, you'd realise that there is nothing you can do other than what happens and there's no reason to penalise or sin-bin it at all. So I think that's where they've got the balance wrong. And this is where football sense comes into it. And there needs to be a lot more football sense. And I understand the whole we can't get sued and all this stuff. But there's always a line in the sand. And we are playing a contact sport that is called rugby league. Now, if you want to be playing rugby league, there is risks involved. But if you want to be the game of rugby league, you can't get away from what rugby league is. And it is 13 large men on one side of the field and 13 large men on another side of the field running the ball as hard as they can to get to the other end and the other side defending by smacking them as hard as they can without doing it illegally. That in essence is what it is. Now, you mentioned things like physics. <laughs> you know, this is a big problem. The late shots that are all getting thrown out at the moment, you know, there was a Felice Cafusi one where he got four weeks mm-hmm. not long ago. I would be livid if I was the Dolphins. He has gone into that with his head down in the proper tack- tackling technique to hit the guy low, and there is no way he can yep. pull out of that. You know, it's just, it is physics. And this is the thing that people don't understand. And the, the throwaway line that became in vogue a few years ago was, well, the responsibility always lies on the defender. And that has just been mangled and used in a way that it was never intended as you know part of the criteria. The responsibility is on the defender within reason. It's not the defender's responsibility if they stand there stationary for a tackle and somebody falls to the ground and hits their knee and cuts their head open. That's You can't say it's the defender's responsibility. Why? They did everything that they could and everything right to avoid an illegal or dangerous tackle. And that's what it comes down to. That's their responsibility as a defender. When you have two large men going at it, I'll use Olam as an example, getting absolutely cut in half on the weekend. That hit was about a centimetre away from being a send-off. And he wouldn't have done anything differently in that hit as a defender to be sent off or to be applauded for. Now, as a game, we need to take a stand ourselves and decide whether we want to see tackles and rugby league hits that are rugby league anymore because some of them are going to result in injuries, but it's not going to be through reckless or stupid behaviour. And we're going to lose a lot of the essence of rugby league if we're not careful, if we keep going down these paths. And that's a real concern. You got two guys. You got two guys running at each other, mate. Like you said, they're 115 kilos. I would urge everybody to try and do that in a park if you've never actually played footy. Try and run at someone else at full speed and, and see if you can pull out a millisecond beforehand. Because I can tell you what, whenever I hit anyone, I was aiming at the right spot, but a meter out, I had my eyes closed because you brace for impact. It's what happens. You cannot physically even roll out of it in the air to try and avoid it if something changes. Yeah, a big part of the problem is that you watch everything in super slow-mo. You know, like I, when when they first started talking about introducing the bunker, for example, I I realised the way society was, it had to happen, but I didn't even want the bunker. I, was, I grew up in an era where, you know, the referee's decision is final. You know, like if you get penalised, you shut your mouth, you get on side and you keep playing. And, yeah, you might have games where you sort of go, oh, gee, the referee caned us. 
But over the course of a season, it all evens up, you know. So um, it, it's all about playing hard, playing tough and playing fair. And, and I think the average footballer, in fact, I can't think of a single footballer that isn't hard, isn't tough and isn't fair. Nobody sets out to hit these people high. Nobody, right? Um, but the game is played at such an intense speed. Like if you think about old school props like Steve Roach, you know, when they when they hit it up, they just ran arrow straight. There was no footwork there. Um, and, and Steve Roach would probably take three days to run 100 metres. You know, now you've got blokes like um, Nelson or Sofa Solomono who's way bigger than than um, Steve Roach ever was. He's got footwork and he can probably run 100 metres in 12 and a half seconds, you know. And, and so I just think we need to understand that if you if the bunker wants to get involved and slow everything down, they're going to find a lot of things that aren't really there, you know. Um, so, you would, yeah. You would and, find 100 different head contacts in a game basically every time if you slowed it down and you put a slow-mo picture up. Well, interestingly enough, under the rules of the game, as it stands today, if there is a head clash, in theory, the defender is responsible for it. Mm. And you think to yourself, hang on, man, head clashes happen every day. You know, that's, that's just part of footy, you know. But no, no, as a defender, I mean, obviously you can sort of wrap around and hit your own bloke. But in footy, as, as the rules stand today, if there is a head clash, the defender is responsible. So if we keep going down this path, how long before we see guys thin bin for accidental head knocks you know it's 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 yeah it's going to happen we've, we've drawn the line too far um and while i'm a massive fan of peter volandis i think he's one of the uh, probably one of the greatest sports administrators been amazing with what he's done in his time in rugby league but if he's not careful i think when he moves on he's going to be remembered for some bad things and i think this is one of the things that he needs to understand rugby league is an absolutely brutal game and that's why we watch it yeah, and you're never and and I guess this is going to be one of the questions to always ask: What are you achieving with all these sin bins? Because if you're going to penalise somebody to an extreme, which is sending them off the field, you need to be doing it to correct behaviour. That is the whole idea of doing it. If somebody cannot do anything in a tackle, such as uh, adjusting for someone's height right before they hit, or not hitting someone they've launched for because the ball's gone a millisecond before they hit them and these type of scenarios, if somebody couldn't have done anything different, then the behavior is never going to change other than not playing rugby league anymore, you know, which is an extreme example, but it is true. It will never change. And we'll get to a point in three years where that Olam getting folded in half hit on the weekend that everybody loved will never happen again because it is too close to a penalty or a sin bin or a send off and you can't do anything about it. So, the game has to realise this and decide why they're sin bidding players for some of this stuff. I'll give another really good example, mate, because you brought up uh, the ridiculousness that we could get to. In a few years' time, we will look back at that Tapao sin bin a few weeks ago, a couple of weeks ago for the Broncos, and say that is an unbelievably ridiculous decision. It is laughable. You've got Tapao running through chasing a kick. He doesn't even go in to tackle someone. And you've got Rapana that grabs a kick drops to the ground at the knees about 10 centimetres oh, off yeah. um, to power running through to get the ball. To power doesn't even try and a, a, a attempt to tackle and Rapana headbutts his kneecap. Now Rapana is injured, split open, terrible injury. To power doesn't just get penalised, he gets sent to the bin. Wasn't that shocking? It is one of the worst decisions I've ever seen. Yeah, well, I made a I made a joke to you on um I think the other day I said you know if 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 you're a modern coach, 
the first thing you need to do is you need to find a, a team of, of midgets and dwarves and run them out there, you know, <laughs> because when you're three foot high, it's impossible to tackle you without making contact with your head, right? And, and uh, you know, if you then say to them, on top of that, I want you guys to all run your hair so it hangs halfway down your ass. You know, every single time these guys hit the ball up, sure, they're tiny, they're going to get smashed and the bloke's going to get binned. You know, within 20 minutes, you'll have a team where your little your little team of little people is still a team and they're <laughs> up against a, an opponent with absolutely no players because they're all in the bloody bin. It was inexcusable. Like, it, it, it's a bad penalty. To me, that shouldn't even be blown as a penalty. And I saw the argument given by some media, um, certainly by the NRL, certainly by some fans that, well, Rapana never would have lost the ball if he didn't get hit in the head. And that's fine, but I will remind everybody that a number of years ago, several times over, I have seen many times in the NRL, in Super League, everywhere, the call being made after a player's gotten injured badly or knocked out or anything and dropped the ball, that no, the play stopped when he was injured. We're mm. going to go back here for the injury. And re- re- possession is retained. We have, we've all of a sudden gone to this rule that we've just made up in our heads that oh, no, because he's dropped possession, it has to either be a penalty or they lose possession. No, it doesn't. The referees have always had the ability uh, to referee the game, and that has always been part of it. And this is where common sense and football comes into it. You can't just be black and white. You've got to be able to referee rugby league. Yeah. And this has happened before. Why, why has this rule just disappeared? And if referees are too scared to do it, then put it in the rule book. It's not hard to fix this stuff. The no. rule is if somebody gets maimed, knocked out or injured terribly to the point that they drop the ball and are flailing on the ground and you have to stop game for an injury, if you've got to stop game from an injury, at the point of the injury is when the game stopped. So Canberra retain possession. They don't get a penalty because Tapau did nothing wrong and Canberra play on after they see to Rapana off the side of the field. It yeah. is really common sense and real rugby league, yet we've just lost all common sense and we've lost all feel for what rugby league is supposed to be. That to power one was absolutely ridiculous. I'm going to finish this spray, Marty, because I'm just going to keep going forever <laughs> if I don't. Yeah. But I'm going, to, I'm going to raise one more thing with the hip drop stuff especially, but really with anything. Intentional gets brought up. And I always raise um, part of the factors and criteria we should be looking at if you're sending someone off the field, either fully send off or just a 10-minute stint, is that, you know, well, you know, they didn't do it intentionally. And the response from some people is, well, nobody ever hits someone high intentionally or nobody ever does this intentionally. It's the action that's intentional. And the hip drops are the perfect example, okay? No, nobody really is going out to do somebody's ACL. But the whole point of the hip drop crackdown was getting rid of the technique where a player intentionally goes in with a hip drop technique to go around the waist and then jump in the air and drop their body weight onto the back of someone's legs while they're holding him. That is an intentional tackling technique. The whole point of the chicken wing was to get rid of an intentional tackling technique. It wasn't accidental that someone's arm got tangled up. Somebody grabbed an arm and did a manoeuvre that is an intentional technique. They intended to implement that tackling technique. That's intentional. So those are the type of things where it should be able to be really easy to say, this is an intentional hip drop tackle because why we brought this in as a rule to Simbin this is because if somebody goes in with that tackling technique, it's illegal and we're sending them off. As opposed to this person tried to do a normal tackle and ended up on the back of someone's legs. We can see they didn't do an intentional hip drop. There is a big difference. And I just think that the whole intention thing 
gets wiped out because everybody says everything's an accident, so there's never any intention. There's certainly intention in technique, Marty. Yeah, well, I think it's a cause versus effect, and it seems like at the moment in the NRL we're not really worried about intent. We're just worried about the effect, you know. So, um, again, it gets it gets back to what we've been talking about with with the way the game is, the way it's perceived by the people that run the game, you know, the belief that we need to push for the hearts and the minds of mums to get their kids involved and, you know, and the, the, the potential legal ramifications. But, yeah, I, I, I agree. One question I had for you because I watched it live and I was really concerned and then at the end of it, I thought, holy shit, was he faking? Do you remember on the weekend when Munster got taken out late and he actually had a spasm on the ground? Yeah, and it looked like he was play- it looked like he'd played it was- for a penalty. And that's happened a couple of weeks in a row for Munster. But what was he faking that? I thought he'd swallowed his tongue or no, something. Well, he seemed he seemed fine after afterwards. And like and this is the other thing too, which which makes the game look really bad, right? When you have all these dives and stuff. Like I, I hate to bring back to the Roosters game that we started with. But that hip drop tackle that the butcher got sent off for for the bin, and also ended up getting a week on the sideline for, uh, you would have thought that Britton Nakora was going off the field for the game. He was that injured. But you know what fixed the injury faster than the magic spray in under eights footy? Just the whistle getting blown. He was straight up and he was back in the line to play and attack the the Roosters line at that point. You know, and, yeah. So and- growing, growing up as a kid, right, I, I hated soccer. And if you sit down, and I didn't really have any real reason to hate it as such, you know, but if you if you sit down and now as now I'm a bit older and I think back to it, the thing I hated about soccer wasn't the game, it was the people that played it. You know, the whole constant you accidentally get hit across the back of the shins or whatever, and you you act like you've broken your leg, you know. And I never thought I'd see a day where this would become part of rugby league. Um and the constant lying down to give the bunker time to have a look at it, the constant lying down to try to pretend to the ref that it was worse than it was. Um, I know that guys are being coached to to do that, but if, you know, if you're looking at sin bins and penalties and stuff like that, I mean, that's the area that I'd really like them to address is we have to get this lying down out of the game because it goes it's against everything I believe about sport and it goes against everything I believe about being an Australian. And rugby league. And it's... It's one of those things yeah. where you, it's one of the easiest things to get rid of in the world. Like people talk about or penalise it. You can't do that because it's too hard to say some, you can't say someone faked an injury and then penalise them for it. It's, it's It opens up a massive can of worms. The easiest way to do it is to not reward the behaviour. When you watch it in the bunker, you can see that the, the, the defender didn't actually do anything wrong, even if there was, you know, a little bit of a tangle with a, with a um, back of a leg or whatever then don't reward it. Uh, at the same time, if it's not a match review committee offence, if you can't cite it, if you can't put it on a report, then it shouldn't be reviewed by the bunker anyway. So the bunker reviews it. Don't Great. look for reasons to put it on report. Don't reward the behaviour. Yep. It isn't that bad a thing if it's not reportable, so don't do it. And then if that happens, players will stop laying down pretty quickly because you know what's bad? If you don't get a penalty and then your team's stuck there on the fourth tackle working out from their line and you've got a set defensive line because you just stop for a minute and a half on the ground writhing around. That's bad for your team. Players will stop doing it. Yeah. So stop rewarding the behaviour and for the NRL, decide what you're trying to do with all these sin bins. Remember it's rugby league and whilst 
you always have to make sure it's as safe as possible. It will never be a safe sport. So remember where the line in the sand is and stop going across it because at the moment we're several beaches down the road past where that line's drawn in the sand and it is going to ruin the game if it keeps going on. Let's get on to something more positive, Marty, to finish off the podcast. A legend rewind. Throw you a bone here. He's an Illawarra junior, uh, but he ended up playing for St. George Illawarra, so he did don a Dragons jersey, and that is Trent Barrett. I love Trent Barrett coming through. I remember him really vividly uh, debuting for the Illawarra Steelers because one of my favourite players of all time is Brad Fittler. And he came through almost with an unfortunate tag that he could be the next Freddie because I think it weighed down on him and I think it was quite unfair. But as a player, he had big size for a 5'8", and he had a good step and a really good running game that was pretty devastating. And you saw that in his try scoring. But he was also a great ball player. So you could see why he had the Freddie comparisons when he came through. Came from Tamora uh, and ended up being, I, I think, one of the oh, one of the really good without being top five eights in the last 30 years. And probably in that second tier that kind of gets forgotten because of the great five eights that we've had, like the Lockyers and the Fittlers and so forth. Oh, I used to love watching him play. And he came through and played for the Dragons, obviously, like I said, but it's one of those careers as well that I think really gets understated. He scored 82 tries in 235 NRL games, so he had quite the strike rate, better than one in three games. That was a devastating ball runner. Uh, One of the knocks that was always on his career was he didn't run the ball enough because he could have been so devastating doing it. But, you know, his first NRL season, he came and debuted in 97 for the ARL, scored 12 tries in 20 games, scored 18 tries in the NRL season in 1998 in his second year. 18 tries in 24 games. Fantastic strike rate. He ended up um, being shafted to halfback for your Dragons team because you had Anthony Mundine at the time, and that was really controversial. When Mundine moved on, I always remember it because NRL 2000, he was playing 5'8 again, Trent Barrett, and he won the Dally M for that year. And I thought it was such an outstanding season and a really understated one. He's one of those guys that you kind of forget about, Marty, because he won a Dally M, but he didn't win a competition. And he was sort of unfairly maligned at not playing a heap of rep games. You know, he still played for Australia 15 times, but he was kept out of the Australian side starting a lot. And also New South Wales side, he only had 11 appearances, but he's kept out of that a lot. Now, it's pretty unfair to just look at those numbers in a vacuum because he had guys like Brad Fittler ahead of him. And you're not going to, you know, unsee one of the best five eights of all time in Brad Fittler, who was also the Australian New South Wales captain. So it was just unfortunate the time he came through. But I love Trent Barrett and his skill set when he came through. It was a, a breath of fresh air, but also like a Freddie 2.0. Yeah, I mean, Barrett was great, you know, a local junior, which while it's a bit old-fashioned, I still take a lot of pride in seeing players run out for my club, from my from my territory. Um 154 games for the Dragons, and before that he was um, he was there for Illawarra. He from there moved on overseas to play for Wigan, um, played a couple of seasons at the Sharks at the end of his career. Uh, country origin, state of origin, Australia, um, then went on to coach Manly for three years, the Doggies, um, and I'm pretty sure he's the assistant coach of the Eels at the moment. So, um, yeah, he was a he was a, a great Dragon. He, he was one of my favourite players of that generation. Um, but actually, to understand Trent Barrett, from my perspective, it's nothing to do with his playing. Um, it was how good-looking he was, you know. So back then, <laughs> I had a girlfriend and I, I couldn't. She was so disinterested in football. I'd say to her, oh, you know, let's go to the Cobra. No, I don't want to go. I don't want to watch footy. Uh, 
You know, oh, can I go with my mates? No, we're going to the beach, you know, and it would be such a drag to try to get her to the game. And then one day she turned around and she actually asked if we wanted to go to the football. I almost fell over and died. Um, and it wasn't <laughs> until quite some months later that I realised she just wanted to go along and watch Trent Barrett. Um, as it turned out, I was a bit of a swordsman at that time in my life and I had multiple girlfriends throughout Trent Barrett's career and every single girlfriend I had would happily go to a Dragons game. You know, <laughs> Trent Barrett retires and now I can't get any girl to come to the footy with me. Um, so, yeah, I, I think he's a little bit like what you're seeing with Walsh at the Broncos at the moment with his beautiful eyeliner and all the rest of it. You know, it, it's quite handy having a player in your team that's good to look at, not from your perspective necessarily, or maybe it is from your perspective but um, in terms of getting women to the game, which is something that's very important to do, having a hottie like Trent Barrett there is very useful. So I, I, I have nothing but massive respect for Trent Barrett. He probably got me to an extra 20 games in his career than I would have seen under normal circumstances. Well, that's a good little anecdote. Another one is as well, he was one of the biggest halfbacks you've ever seen. When he was playing with Mundane, he had to move to the seven jersey and he stood at about six foot one, 100 kilos at the time. He was a very big halfback, one of the bigger ones that you've seen. But a forgotten fact about Trent Barrett, you mentioned that he went overseas. Um, He played two years in the Super League. In 2007, he actually got the Players Player of the Year Award for the Super League and was highly touted and um, like a one favourite to win the Man of Steel over there. And this was after his NRL career, so it was no mean feat at the time to go over and be able to do that at his age and at the miles that he had on. Ended up losing it, but... You know, a lot of good pundits say that he should have won that as well as the player's player in 2007. So had a fantastic Super League career at the Wigan Warriors there too. Um, Scored 26 tries in his 60 games. It's interesting with Barrett because you say he was a big boy and he was. So it shows you how much the body shape of the modern athlete has changed and tags in a bit to the comments we were making about the sin bidding not being able to adjust for the changing physiques in players and, you know, the athleticism of players and what you actually have to do to get them to ground now. You know, Trent Barrett today, size-wise, would be similar to most 5'8". He wouldn't be big at all. You look at the, um, you know, the Eagles um, He's about a bar, yeah. Yeah. Um, but then if you have a look at the size of the centres, you know, the, that was an era, you know, it wasn't that long before Trent Barrett came along that your average centre was the size of like a Brett Kenny or a Steve Eller kind of person. You know, nowadays mm-hmm. your centres are 103 kilo tanks. And so, yeah, it, it was interesting when you said Trent Barrett was big because he was. He ain't big now. Yeah, although I will say the little caveat with that, is that you've got to be careful with these lists because um, I think some of them are a little inaccurate at times. And I reckon there was obviously players fluctuate and stuff. He started to really hit the weights. He ended up with these massive Mado arms for a while. And mm-hmm. uh, he got over 100 kilos for sure, I reckon. So Maybe um, for, for a little bit. I know Trent. Um, so, uh, yeah. I met him a couple of times and he, he definitely was, the times that I met him sort of mid-career, he was a bit bigger and to the end of the career too, a bit bigger than... Um, they used to list the same weight from when you debuted to when you finished, so I'm not too sure exactly. Yeah, it's like the um, it's like the Newtown. Whenever you know, whenever they list the crowd attendance, they always say it was something like nine thousand nine hundred and seventy-two, and and everyone goes, "Wow, that's amazing to get that to a reserve grade." It's just like the crowd has been nine thousand nine hundred and seventy-two at every game, you know, 
Newtown's <laughs> played for for a decade now. So um, yeah, I've got to tell you, he looks he's in pretty good nick, Trent. Still, like he's he's still a machine. Oh, he's still a pin up boy. He's still a pin up boy. And speaking about the weights yeah, and stuff, you know, Sam Cassiano yeah. was listed at 110 kilos, and I still remember the Bulldogs putting him in reserve grade because he was at 137 <laughs> and he had to drop the weight. Yeah, so, yeah. You know. <laughs> Well, to finish on Trent Barrett, he had a great career. I love remembering guys as well that aren't just, you know, these out-and-out Hall of Famers and, and future immortal potential and stuff and the greatest ever. He was a guy that just, he would have had an extra 20 representative games for New South Wales and Australia had he not had Brad Fittler in front of him and some other really good players as well. But, you know, got to a 99 grand final, lost it to Melbourne, also won a Dally M, and yet his career is uh, largely forgotten now. So he was a, he was an exceptional player. And one of the one of the players I enjoyed watching run the ball most in that era across the first decade that he was playing. So great career for Trent Barrett. Great podcast for us. We will wrap it up. Marty Jones, thank you for jumping on the NRL All-Stars podcast, Talking Footy. It was fantastic to have you. Yeah, no worries. Well, thanks for inviting me. As a retired man, I have plenty of time to talk football <laughs> and go fishing and drink beer. That's about all I do nowadays. So, well, I know you get to see all yeah, the games, so, so it makes it a lot easier. So, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's oh, so nice, man. It's, it's such a joy to be able to actually watch the football for a change. So, um, yeah. So, thanks for having me. It was always good, and um, as I say, I, I enjoy the podcast. It's um. You know, we don't talk super coach on this particular podcast, but from a super coach perspective, I get a lot out of these podcasts. Um, so yeah, it's good. Awesome. Well, for everyone listening, you can download, subscribe, and stream on SoundCloud, iTunes, Spotify, Amazon. You can find us everywhere. You can also jump on Twitter and give us a follow, NRL underscore SC underscore All Stars. You'll get all the latest up-to-date info on the podcast getting released and everything else. But the other way you can do that is to subscribe. You can also share it around as well so we can keep getting those new listeners on board that I love to get listening for the first time. But enjoy the footy this round. We're about to kick off tonight. Enjoy Supercoach as well. We're going to talk about that on Tuesday night. Until then, enjoy it all. Can't wait to talk about round eight and everything that it was in rugby league next week. Hey now, you're an all-star. Get your game on, go play.